Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to welcome our distinguished uh, witnesses today and thank you for taking the time to be here. Um, this is an important topic. Um, we know that each of you have been traveling extensively and again want to thank you uh, uh, for being with us today to share your insights. Um, I think everybody on this uh, committee cares first and foremost that we have a policy, a strategy uh, to deal with ISIS that uh, is in, uh, in relation to our national interest, that the two are aligned. And I think that is paramount and what most people in America care about and certainly everyone on this committee. Secondarily to that, from my perspective, is the authorization process itself. And yet we find ourselves in, a, in an interesting place. Uh, the President, uh, which I appreciate, has sent to us an authorization for the use of military force. Um, that was welcomed, I think, by both sides of the aisle. As we have received that authorization for the use of military force, what we have come to understand is that, uh, and this is not a pejorative statement, it's an observation, uh, we don't know of a single Democrat in Congress, in the United States Senate anyway, that supports that authorization for the use of military force. On the other hand, the authorization for the use of military force that has been sent up is one that is limited in some ways, both in duration and relative to the activities that the Commander-in-Chief through you can carry out. And so what that does on this side of the aisle is put Republican senators in the position of looking at a limited authorization for the use of military force that in some ways ratifies a strategy especially in Syria, that many people do not believe is effective, one that shows, does not show the commitment necessary to really be successful, uh, to be successful in the short term. So I think this hearing today will be very helpful in trying to, uh, to come together and to understand, number one, that we have a, a strategy in Syria that is, that is in our national interest, that we have a strategy in Iraq that is in our national interest, and we understand that ISIS obviously is promulgating in many other places. I was in uh, Baghdad and Erbil three weeks ago, and regardless of how we've gotten to where we are today, um, and I know a lot of things have been said about decisions that have been made along the way, one of the things that uh, jumped out at me, uh, very glaring, is that in many ways, every single thing the United States is doing right now in Iraq, uh, things that I support, I might add, to deal with, with ISIS, every single thing that we're doing is really inuring to the benefit of Iran. In other words, we're making Iraq a better place for Iran. No doubt uh, a body wants uh, one foot in our country's uh, and one foot in Iran, and no doubt he's looking for our assistance, and no doubt he looks for us, uh, looks to us as a balance. But when you look at the way Iran has permeated the parliament there, when you look at Soleimani and his, uh, the fact that he's a celebrity in Iran now and leading the efforts, uh, the Shia militia, uh, it's something that jumps out. And I hope that 
During today, all of you will be able to illuminate how we should feel about that, should we care. I know we've had numbers of people uh, getting exercised about the fact that we have Iranian-led Shia militia uh, dealing with ISIS. Uh, because of the observations that I've made, I'm not sure that that should even be an issue. In essence, uh, we are working towards the same end. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and what may occur after March 24th. In the event there isn't an agreement with Ron over the nuclear program, how will that affect how the Shia militia that are very in close proximity to our own men and women in uniform, how that might affect them? And in closing, I hope that what you'll do today also is to illuminate to us why some of the decisions that we know are key. Uh, after being in Erbil and Baghdad, I was in Ankara with our Turkish friends. I know a decision memo has been in front of the President for some time relative to an air exclusion zone in Aleppo and decisions about how we may or may not deal with uh, protecting uh, those that we're training and equipping right now to come in against ISIS. Um, I don't think we've made those decisions yet. And I think to many of us here, what that shows is potentially uh, a lack of commitment, if you will, to really deal with ISIS in a more significant way. That may not be the case, and I hope today during your testimony we'll be able to understand more fully the lack of those decisions being made, what that means relative to the overall effort. So I welcome you here. I think uh, all three of you have been highly regarded by members of the United States Senate on both sides of the aisle, and we trust your testimony today will be very beneficial to us as we move ahead. And with that, I'll turn, turn to our very, very distinguished ranking member, uh, Senator Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to Secretaries Kerry and Carter and Chairman Dempsey for being here with us today. Uh, last December, this committee reported a resolution to authorize the use of military force to counter ISIL. We acted because many of us shared a view, then and now, that we stood with the President to defeat ISIL, but that the 2001 AUMF was not and is not intended to apply to our current engagement in Iraq and Syria. We believe then, as now, that it is imperative that Congress authorize any further military action against ISIL. It's imperative that we don't shoehorn this conflict into an old AUMF, and it may be convenient, but it isn't right. We have an obligation to the families who are sending their children into harm's way to understand our goals, what is achievable and what is not, and ultimately to vote to authorize or not authorize the use of force. This committee had extensive discussions of many of these issues last year, and the AUMF we passed had a restriction on the deployment of ground troops allowing for all potential uses that the administration had so far identified, including the use of special operation forces to go after high-value ISIL targets, search and rescue of downed pilots, the use of forward air controllers with Iraqi units to better direct coalition airstrikes. It also repealed the 2002 AUMF in Iraq and set a three-year time frame for Congress to reconsider the 9-11 AUMF. What it didn't do, and what I think Democrats are not willing to do is to give this or any other president an open-ended authorization for war, uh, a blank check. And as someone who opposed the 2002 Iraq AUMF and who has seen the 2001 authorization that I did support go far beyond where anyone would have contemplated, this is the critical question moving forward. 
So I look forward to getting some answers from our witnesses that will allow us to move forward in writing and passing an authorization. But we need to know what combat operations may be undertaken by U.S. troops on the ground in Syria and Iraq. We need to know whether associated forces that come under this agreement could include forces affiliated with ISIL in Libya, Nigeria, or elsewhere. We need to know whether a new administration could revert to relying on the 2001 AUMF in three years if this AUMF, if passed, were to expire. And we need to know how long we expect to be there and what our exit strategy will be, what metrics will indicate success or tell us it's time to bring troops home. We heard from General Allen two weeks ago that under the President's proposed language prohibiting enduring offensive combat forces that U.S. troops could be deployed for as little as two weeks or as long as two years before they would trigger the restriction on no enduring offensive operations. On the other hand, General Dempsey said last week that he does not view this language as time restrictive, but as mission specific. So General Dempsey believes the language in this AUMF would allow, for example, U.S. ground forces to accompany Iraqi forces into Mosul. Clearly, there's a need to define exactly what would be allowed. And it would seem to me that legally there is at least the potential for large numbers of U.S. troops to be deployed in Iraq and Syria and maybe beyond with the authorization as submitted. So, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to uh, hearing uh, the answers to these and other questions from our distinguished witnesses, and I thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for your comments. And uh, uh, again, we have three outstanding witnesses. We want to welcome you here. Um, as I understand it, uh, Secretary Kerry is going to begin, followed by Secretary Carter, followed by Chairman Dempsey. Uh, we are honored that you're here before us. Look forward to your testimony. And, I think you all know the drill. If you will, keep it to about five minutes, uh, if that's possible, and uh, we will ask questions after. Thank you for being here. Well, Chairman Corker and uh, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, um, we're pleased to be here. I'm pleased to return here, and particularly so with, uh, in the distinguished company of uh, Defense Secretary Ash Carter and our Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Marty Dempsey. Um, from my 29 years of service on this committee, uh, I have nothing but respect for the committee's prerogatives and particularly the role that it can play at, at, on a critical issue like this. Um, we are very simply looking for, as I think both of you, uh, Mr. Chairman, ranking member, have said, uh, the appropriate present day authorization. Uh, not, as you said, Senator Menendez, 2001, but 2015 statement by the United States Congress about the authority with which we should be able to go after, degrade, and destroy, as the President has said, uh, a group known as ISIL or Daesh. Now, Mr. Chairman, in our democracy, there are many views about the challenges and the opportunities that we face. And that's appropriate, that's, that's who we are. But I hope we believe that there is an overwhelming consensus that Daesh has to be stopped. Our nation is strongest, always has been, when we act together. There's a great tradition in this country of foreign policy having a special place, that politics ends at the water's edge, and that we will act uh, on behalf of our nation without regard to party and ideology. Uh, 
Uh, we simply cannot allow this collection of murderers and thugs to achieve in their group uh, their ambition, which includes, by the way, uh, most likely the death or submission of all those who oppose it, the seizure of land, the theft of resources, the incitement of terrorism across the globe, the killing and attacking of people simply for what they believe or for who they are. And the joint resolution that is proposed by the President provides the means for America and its representatives to speak with a single powerful voice at this pivotal hour. When I came here last time, I, I mentioned that uh, American people are speaking out, Secretary Kerry. We're tired of an endless war. We don't want to go in with a war with no The committee will be in order. Look, uh, we appreciate. Another endless war killing of innocent people. Okay. If this happens again, I would ask the police to escort immediately people out of the room. Killing more innocent people. I wonder how our journalists who were beheaded and a pilot who was fighting for freedom who was burned alive, what they would have to say to uh, their efforts to protect innocent people. Uh, ISIL's momentum has been diminished, Mr. Chairman. It's still picking up supporters uh, in places, uh, obviously, we've, we've all observed that. But in the places where we have focused and where we are asking you to focus at this moment in time, it is clear that even while savage attacks continue, there is the beginning of a process to cut off their supply lines, to take out their leaders, to cut off their finances, to reduce the foreign fighters, to counter the messaging that has brought some of those fighters to this effort. But to ensure its defeat, we have to persist until we prevail in the broad-based campaign along multiple lines of effort that have been laid out over the course of the last months. The President already has statutory authority to act against ISIL. But a clear and formal expression of this Congress's backing at this moment in time would dispel doubt that might exist anywhere that Americans are united in this effort. Approval of this resolution would encourage our friends and our partners in the Middle East. It would further energize the members and prospective members of the global coalition that we have assembled to oppose Daesh. And it would constitute a richly deserved vote of confidence in the men and women of our armed forces who are on the front lines uh, prosecuting this effort on our behalf. Your unity would also send an unmistakable message to the leaders of Daesh. They have to understand they can't divide us. Don't let them. They cannot intimidate us. And they have no hope of defeating us. The resolution that we have proposed would give the President a clear mandate to prosecute the armed component of this conflict against Daesh and associated persons or forces, which we believe is carefully delineated and defined. And while the proposal contains certain limitations that are appropriate in light of the nature of this mission, 
It provides the flexibility that the President needs to direct a successful military campaign. And that's why the administration did propose a limitation on the use of, quote, enduring offensive ground combat operations. I might add, that was after uh, the committee, then committee chair, Senator Menendez, and the committee uh, moved forward with its language, and we came up here and testified and responded basically to the dynamics that uh, were presented us within the committee and the Congress itself. So the proposal also includes no geographic limitation, not because there are plans to take it anywhere, but because, because it would be a mistake to communicate to ISIL. I would just ask those in the audience, uh, we live in a country where people have the opportunity to express themselves in democratic ways. We would hope that you would allow this hearing to proceed in an orderly way and respect other citizens' rights to be here and to observe what is happening in a, in a civil manner. Um, I would say that uh, I don't think you're helping your cause at all. I would say you're hurting your cause, and hopefully um, you will remain in an appropriate manner. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, thank you. The, the point of the no geographic limitation is not that there are any plans or any contemplation. I think the President has been so clear on this. But what a mistake it would be to send a message to Daesh that there are safe havens, that there is somehow just a two-country limitation, so they go off and put their base, and then we go through months and months of deliberation again. We can't afford that. So that's why there's no limitation. And Mr. Chairman, we know that there are groups in the world, affiliated terrorist groups, who aspire to harm the United States, our allies, our partners. Daesh is, however, very distinctive in that uh, because it holds territory and it will continue, if not stop, to seize more because it has financial resources, because of the debilitating impact of its activities in the broader Middle East, because of its pretensions to worldwide leadership, and because it has already been culpable in violent deaths of Americans and others. And I don't need to preview for this committee the full litany of the outrages that are committed by Daesh. But let me just say that just among them, scratching the surface, are atrocities against Assyrian Christian and Yazidi religious communities, uh, the crucifixion of children, the sale and enslavement of women and girls, the hideous murder of captives from as near as Jordan and as distant as Japan, and the destruction of irreplaceable cultural and historical sites, the plunder and destruction of cities and towns in which followers of uh, Islam worship and raise their families. Now, I testified before this committee just a couple of weeks ago regarding our strategy for disrupting and defeating ISIL. That strategy continues to move forward on all fronts. Uh, Secretary Carter and General Dempsey will touch on the military elements, but I can say from a diplomatic perspective that the world is strongly united in seeking Daesh's defeat. Our coalition is receiving help from governments throughout and beyond the Middle East, governments that may disagree on other issues, 
but not about the need to take decisive action against Daesh. And to date, we have a coalition of some 62 members, including 14 nations, that are contributing directly to the operations against Daesh in Iraq or in Syria, 16 of which have committed to help train or otherwise assist Iraqi security forces. Since the coalition came together less than half a year ago, we have stopped ISIL's surge, we have degraded its leadership, we have forced it to change its communications and its movement and its tactics, and heavily damaged its revenue-generating oil facilities. And if you have a classified briefing, I think you'll get a very good grounding in the progress that is being made to date. We continue to see progress in governance in Iraq, where new leaders are working to strengthen and reform the country's security forces through the purging of incompetent or corrupt officers and the more extensive inclusion of Sunni fighters. In Tikrit right now, there are nearly 1,000 Sunni uh, taking part. There's a cross-section of engagement. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, just to respond and move rapidly here. Uh, We're not moving I, that rapidly, actually. Well, that's why I'm cutting, and I'm going to cut to the chase. Okay, good. Responding to the threat posed by ISIL is just not a partisan issue. At least it shouldn't be. It's not even a bipartisan issue. It's really a test that transcends political affiliations. And it's a tremendous challenge to the security of our nation and to the values of our citizens. And so it's really the kind of challenge that this committee uh, is here to deal with. Yeah. And my hope is that uh, we will live up to the tradition that we have never failed to meet in the past that when we had this kind of challenge, uh, the Congress came together, the Senate particularly, I think, in, in this format, and I'm confident that we can do so here again today and in the next few days. So I'm happy to respond to your questions, but first I'll turn to uh, Secretary Carter. Thank you. Secretary Carter, thank you. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, all the members of the committee, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be with you today on this important subject. Uh, before I begin, um, I'm sure you're all aware that a UH-60 Black Hawk helicopter was involved in an accident last night near Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. We know there were four aircrew, uh, Army, from a National Guard unit in Hammond, Louisiana, and seven Marines assigned to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, on board that helicopter, and our know that uh, with me, our thoughts and prayers are with them and their families as the search and rescue continues. Just as I know we're all proud to have the finest fighting force the world has ever known, that is why at the end of my first week as Secretary of Defense, I traveled to Afghanistan and Kuwait where I thanked our men and women in uniform for their contributions to important missions. And in Kuwait, I talked with our ambassadors and our military leaders in the region about the campaign against ISIL. The trip confirmed for me that ISIL represents a serious and complex threat, especially in our interconnected and networked world. But it also confirmed to me that the enemy can be defeated. We will deliver ISIL a lasting defeat. And I'm happy to share my thoughts about that campaign 
uh, with you, but let me turn to the subject of this hearing, which is uh, the authorization for the use of military force. And in reviewing the President's proposed AOMF as Secretary of Defense, I asked myself two questions. First, does it provide the necessary authority and flexibility to wage our campaign, allowing for a full range of likely military scenarios? And second, will it send the message to the people I'm responsible for, our brave men and women in uniform, and civilian personnel who will wage this campaign, that the country is behind them? I believe the President's AOMF does both, and I urge Congress to pass it. And let me explain why I judge that the proposed AOMF gives the authority and flexibility needed to prevail in this campaign. First, the proposed AOMF takes into account the reality, as Secretary Kerry has noted already, that ISIL is an organization, as, it, as an organization, is likely to evolve strategically, morphing, rebranding, and associating with other terrorist groups while continuing to threaten the United States and our allies. Second, the proposed AOMF wisely does not include any geographical restriction because ISIL already shows signs of metastasizing outside of Syria and Iraq. Third, the President's proposed authorization provides great flexibility in the military means we need as we pursue our strategy, with one exception. The proposed AOMF does not authorize long-term, large-scale, offensive ground combat operations like those we conducted in Iraq and Afghanistan, because our strategy does not call for them. Instead, local forces must provide the enduring presence needed for an enduring victory against ISIL. And fourth and finally, the proposed AOMF expires in three years. I cannot tell you that our campaign to defeat ISIL would be completed in three years, but I understand the reason for the proposed sunset provision. It derives from the important principle stemming from the Constitution that makes the grave matter of enacting an authorization for the use of military force a shared responsibility of the President and Congress. The President's proposed authorization affords the American people the chance to assess our progress in three years' time and provides the next President and the next Congress the opportunity to reauthorize it if they find it necessary. To me, this is a sensible and principled provision of the AOMF, even though I cannot assure that the counter-ISIL campaign will be completed in three years. Now, in addition to providing the authority and flexibility to wage a successful campaign, I said I had another key consideration as Secretary of Defense, and that is sending the right signals, most importantly, to the troops. Passing the proposed AOMF will demonstrate to our personnel that their government stands behind them. And as Secretary Kerry explained, it will also signal to our coalition partners and our adversary that the United States government has come together to address a serious challenge. We all took an oath to protect the nation and its interests, but to do so, we must work together. I know everyone on this committee takes the ISIL threat seriously, and President Obama and everyone at this table does as well. 
we encourage a serious debate. But I urge you to pass the President's AMF because it provides the necessary and authority, to authority and flexibility to wage our current campaign and because it will demonstrate to our men and women in uniform, some of whom are in harm's way right now, that all of us stand unflinchingly behind them. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, distinguished members of this committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. Let me begin by adding my personal thoughts and prayers to those of the Secretary of Defense at the loss of the, of the uh, folks on that helicopter. A reminder to us that those who serve um, put themselves at risk both in training and in combat. And uh, we will work with the services to ensure those uh, survivors, or I should say their family members, will be well cared for. And if I, I could, the committee will join you in that. Thank yes, you. Sir, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today with Secretary Kerry and Secretary Carter. I just returned yesterday from a trip to the Middle East. I spent a day in Baghdad with Iraqi and U.S. leaders discussing our strategy against uh, ISIL. I also spent a day with my French counterpart and 2,000 of France's sailors and Marines aboard the aircraft carrier Charles de Gaulle in the Arabian Gulf. Our U.S. Navy aircraft carrier Carl Vinson was just off the starboard side. These two great vessels sitting side by side, their combat aircraft and importantly their crews, are a powerful image of partnership and commitment in this fight. It's actually the solidarity of all of our coalition members that is fundamental to the strength of our campaign against this trans-regional threat that ISIL represents. The government of Iraq has a lot of work yet to do with the help of the coalition to ensure ISIL is defeated and, importantly, stays defeated, and that will take time. I've been consulted on the proposed authorization for the use of military force against ISIL and its associated groups. It is suitable to the campaign as we have presently designed it. We should expect our enemies will continue to adapt their tactics, and we will adapt ours. Bipartisan support for an AUMF would send an important signal of national support to those who are serving in harm's way conducting this mission. I met with some of them over this past weekend, and they are performing magnificently, as you would expect. I thank you for your commitment to our men and women in uniform, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you all for your testimony, and uh, let me just begin with Secretary Carter and Chairman Dempsey. I know that uh, Secretary Kerry mentioned that he feels that currently the, uh, the AUMF that we have from 01 and the one in, from 02 give uh, the United States legal authority to do what is now occurring. I just wonder if both of you would answer yes or no whether you believe that to be the case. Uh, I do, yes. Yes, Senator. So we... From your perspective, uh, you will make uh, unanimous um, every witness that's come before us on behalf of the administration believes that currently uh, we're operating in a legal, under a legal premise with what we're doing against ISIS today. Let me ask you this question, Secretary Carter, Sec Chairman Dempsey. Has there been any indication to the people we're dealing with uh, as part of our coalition or the troops that Congress today is not behind what is happening uh, on the ground with ISIS? Uh, I can't uh, speak to that, Mr. Chairman. Um, I uh, think that uh, the folks I've talked to uh, of ours uh, do, in fact, believe that uh, 
the outrages that Secretary Kerry described on the part of ISIL warrant the operation that they're involved in. And of course, we don't do anything that isn't lawful. I'm not a lawyer, so I sure. can't tell you. But, but they don't, warrant. there's no one that you deal with that doesn't believe that Congress is wholeheartedly behind the effort to deal with ISIS. Is that correct? Uh, I, I, I haven't talked to people who have had a view one way or the other. They know that a hearing like this is going on. They think they know its purpose. And I presume, like me, they, would, they welcome a good outcome of it. Yeah. Chairman Dempsey. I, I have no data to suggest that they have any doubt about the, the support of the Congress of the United States or the American people. Yeah. Let me, uh, Chairman Dempsey, we've had some great conversations and I always appreciate your candor. Um, I know you've responded to this in other committees, or at least publicly. Should there be any concern by people here that, uh, that Iran um, is influencing the outcome uh, against ISIS, uh, does have Shia militia on the ground, does have some of their own personnel uh, helping command and control? Is that a concern that, that uh, anyone that cares about U.S. national interests should have? Uh, Yes, of course. Uh, there's, there's six things that, um, from the military's pr perspective, uh, concern us about Iranian influence. Four of them are regional, two of them are global. The four regional concerns are surrogates and proxies, some of which are present in Iraq, uh, in Syria, in Lebanon, and other places in Yemen. Um, weapons trafficking, um, ballistic missile technologies, and, and mines that they've developed with the intent to be able to close the Straits of Hormuz um, uh, if certain circumstances would cause them to do that. And then the two global threats, of course, are their nuclear aspirations. Mm -hmm. Not their nuclear aspirations for a peaceful nuclear program, but for a weapon, which is being dealt with uh, through the negotiations on a diplomatic track. And then cyber is the other global threat they pose. So, Iran's uh, activities across the region and in the cases of, of nuclear aspirations and cyber activities are concerning, of course. But as it relates to dealing with Tikrit or Mosul, does, does, should, we, should we care that uh, Iran's uh, militias and others are involved in helping uh, move ISIS out of those areas or will help move out of those areas when we begin the Mosul uh, attack? I think there's general consensus both inside of our own forces and also with the coalition partners with whom I engage that anything anyone does to counter ISIL is in the, in the main a good outcome. In other words, um, the activities of the Iranians, the support for the Iraqi security forces is a positive thing in military terms against ISIL. But we are all concerned about what happens after the the drums stop beating and ISIL is defeated and whether the government of Iraq will remain on a path uh, to provide an inclusive government for all of the various groups within it. We're, we're very concerned about that. And so the, the concern is that once we hit that twitching hour, if you will, when, when it appears that ISIS definitely is on the, on the, towards their end, that all of a sudden the Shia militias and others would potentially turn on our own military and other very negative things could occur at that time? We have no indications that they intend to turn on us. But what we are watching carefully is whether the, the, the militias, they call themselves the Popular Mobilization Forces, whether 
when they recapture lost territory, whether they engage in acts of retribution and, and uh, ethnic cleansing. There's no indication that that is a widespread uh, event at this point, but we're watching closely. So if we can move to Syria, I, I know we've talked a little bit about this, but this is, again, a term I think even the administration has begun to, to utilize themselves. It would appear that in Syria we're sort of in a, in a containment mode that we are really not taking aggressive steps to turn the tide there. We're obviously involved in some, some aerial attacks, but that it's more of a containment mode. When we say Iraq first, it's really Syria more containment. We have a train and equip program right now. And I wonder if you could uh, talk to us about two major decisions. One would be if we're going to train and equip folks in other countries that are being trained against ISIS. I know we've there's been an alleged other program that uh, is against Assad himself, but if we're going to have a, an overt program that um, is going to deal with ISIS, I would assume that we would consider it only moral, that if we're going to train them in other countries and bring them in, that we would supply air, air power and other support to protect them, especially from Assad's barrel bombs. I know that uh, Senator Graham may have asked a question about whether this AUMF itself provides that legal authority, and I would just like to ask you, does the AUMF that the President has sent forth, does it provide the legal authority for our military to protect uh, those that we're training in other places against ISIS, to protect them against Assad, in other words, take Assad on? And I would also like for you to, if, if you would, Talk to us a little bit about why we haven't yet agreed to the air exclusion zone that Turkey has asked us to approve that would more fully bring them in on the ground in Syria and actually get something much more positive occurring, at least as it relates to having some ground effort there. I take it, Senator, you're looking straight at me, so I assume the question is for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let me just... Uh, uh, briefly describe the way uh, militarily we characterize our campaign against ISIL in Iraq and, Af and in Syria. I wouldn't say that our goal is simply to contain ISIL inside of Syria, but rather we've got at this point militarily a main effort and a supporting effort. Our main effort is in Iraq because we have a credible ground partner uh, that, that for whom we supply this air power to distribute it and to, and to uh, degrade and eventually defeat ISIL inside of, of Iraq. We don't have that credible partner inside of Syria yet. We're taking steps to build that partner. In the meantime, we're, we're, we're attacking ISIL wh where we can using ISR and close air support, both U.S. and some coalition partners. And it's intended to, to disrupt their activities so that they can't complement each other. It, used, it was formerly, before we began this effort, that, that ISIL could transit freely across that Syrian-Iraqi border and reinforce efforts on both sides. They're no longer able to do that. They are um, isolated and degraded in Syria while we conduct our main effort inside of Iraq. To your other question about whether the AUMF provides uh, legal authority to protect the new, new Syrian forces, as we've called them, the answer to that is no. We have not, the administration has not added um, a, a, a Syrian regime or an Assad um, component to the AOMF, although we are in active discussion within uh, the interagency about what support we would supply 
uh, once the new Syrian forces are fielded. Now, militarily, um, there's a very pragmatic reason. You mentioned the moral obligation, I suppose. Let me not speak to that, uh, but rather let me speak to the... Well, well, well if I could, I mean, we, we, so we're spending, Congress has approved a significant amount of money to train and equip uh, people to go against ISIS, and yet we know Assad will barrel bomb them in all likelihood, or at least members yeah. of their... So I'm asking, so the, so the president has actually sent us an AUMF that doesn't allow us to protect them against what we know they will be facing down the road. That, to me, is somewhat odd and doesn't seem congruent, if you will, with previous steps relative to train and equip. Can you understand why? I would uh, no, I understand completely. I'm not, and I'm not discounting the moral obligation. I'm, I'm rather suggesting that I'm giving you military advice right. under my Article I responsibility. And militarily, there's a very pragmatic reason to support them, and that is we're not going to be able to recruit men into that force unless we agree to support them at some level. So militarily, uh, I know we've had a pretty good crop that have signed up on the front end, or at least that's my understanding. But we cannot recruit more if we're not going to protect them, and yet the AUMF that we have before us doesn't allow us to protect them. Is that, is that clearly what you're saying? We're under active discussion about whether and how to support them, and part of that discussion is the legal authority to do so, and I, I would defer to those with that expertise. And I know I'm way over, but the air exclusion zone, what is, what is keeping us from the, those types of yeah, we, we've been in two rounds of discussion with our Turkish counterparts about that, and we're, we are continuing to develop that option should it be asked for. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Boxer, who is the ranking member on the Environment and Public Works, had to go to uh, be part of that hearing, so I'll ask you that her statement be included in the record. Uh, and. Uh, I've heard all of you several times refer to no geographic limitation, and so for the purposes of the record, let it reflect that the um, AUMF that was passed out last year, uh, Democrats put together, has no geographic limitation. So I think there is, a, a, although that was a subject of uh, debate, uh, nonetheless, it they came to a conclusion to have no geographic limitation. So to that extent, uh, you know, uh, I know you've all raised it, and I want to deal with it. Let me ask you, uh, uh, General Dempsey, uh, uh, is it fair to say that Iran-sponsored Shia militias uh, in Iraq, uh, fighting ISIL is definitely their immediate interest, but would it also be fair to say they have other designs beyond that? It would be fair to say that that hasn't become evident, but it is of great concern of us who have served in Iraq since 2003. Iran is not a new, uh, a new um, entrant into the crucible of Iraq. They've been there since 2004. And in some, in some cases, their influence, their economic influence and in, in, in other ways uh, has contributed to the future of Iraq. And in other ways, it has absolutely been disruptive to the inclusiveness or the potential for an inclusive governance. So, I mean, I, I believe me, I share your concerns, and um, we're watching carefully. The Tikrit operation will be a, a strategic inflection point, one way or the other, in terms of easing our concerns or increasing them. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I know that Soleimani is a cause celebrity these days uh, there, so uh, I 
would like to believe that it is only to fight ISIL, but I don't believe that their purpose is at the end of the day. We have different goals as it relates to Iraq, both in the short term as it relates to ISIL, and then in the long term of a democratic, multi-ethnic uh, uh, government. So uh, it's a continuing concern. Now, Chairman uh, Dempsey, you said in your remarks, and I, since I don't have a, a copy of your statement, but also correct me if I'm wrong here, something to the extent that the authorization is uh, proposed by the administration uh, basically, or substantially, I think was the word, deals with our campaign as we have presently devised it. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement, Senator. Does it also uh, deal with a campaign that may alter than you have presently devised it? It, it deals with uh, the campaign as presently designed and has statements in there. Uh, I don't know what, which part of it you might you might. Well, if you're reacting to let, let me perfect my question. If in fact your campaign, as presently designed, needs to morph change uh, to the realities of what is happening, do you believe the authorization will allow you to do that? Yes, I do, and that's because as most of us who have um, both studied and served against these kind of threats over the past now almost four, 14 years, uh, we believe that. Uh, that the primary way you defeat these groups is by, with, and through partners in the region and through, the, and through sustainment of a broad coalition, and that the U.S. forces involved uh, should principally be in enabling, not necessarily leading the effort, although the AOMF does uh, provide, well, first of all, I will always go back to the Commander-in-Chief through the Secretary of Defense and recommend whatever I think is necessary to, to accomplish the task. But as I presently conceive, as we presently conceive of this threat and how to defeat it, this AUMF is adequate to the task. Well, and, and I appreciate that answer because it underlines the challenge that uh, members of the committee have in getting to the right point to support the President, this and any future one, to degrade and defeat ISIL, and at the same time, uh, not to provide the open-endedness so that if, in fact, it meets your present criteria, but you believe it has the wherewithal to meet a future criteria that may morph, that is the essence uh, of the challenge. And so, uh, last week before the Armed Services Committee, General Dempsey, you, uh, in response to questions, said that your view of what no enduring uh, offensive combat operations would mean would be mission specific. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, and I also said that it was. It's not a. Doc, it's it's not a doctrinal term. There is no word enduring in military doctrine, but it is a statement of the commander in chief's intent. Right, uh, and we all know that it may be the intent of someone not to have any large scale, long term. Uh, offensive combat troops, but that intention can honestly change along the way. And so that's part of our challenge here. Uh, General Allen testified before this committee last week when we asked him, what does uh, endure, no enduring offensive combat operations uh, mean to you? And he said, well, that could mean as, as uh, long as two weeks or two years. Uh, and considering his experience, it was not a uh, not a, a an insignificant statement. So, Secretary Carter, what what does it mean to you uh, as ultimately 
the Secretary of Defense who oversees uh, all of the armed forces under, under your department, of course, under the President's command. What does no enduring offensive combat operations mean to you? Uh, the, uh, there are two ingredients uh, uh, to this, the, the how and the when. Uh, and the AUMF, as proposed, uh, is, um, as I noted, uh, uh, provides for a wide range of um, uh, activities to defeat ISIL, uh, but it has one significant limitation, uh, which is uh, the one you referred to, which essentially uh, does not authorize the kind of uh, campaign that we conducted in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, that is not what we foresee as necessary for the defeat of ISIL, so I, it's it, it, it meets my objective of having necessary flexibility, but there, there is that limitation. That is what is written in, and that is what the meaning of those words is. As regards the three-year limit, as I indicated, that's not based on an assessment of how long the campaign will take. Right. That is based upon how our system works and, here and that's what, uh, at home, and it doesn't have and anything I appreciate to do with that, and that's what we did uh, uh, in our authorization. But even a not an Iraq or Afghanistan size commitment still can commit thousands of troops for a long period of time. And so it may not be the size of Afghanistan or Iraq. So that's, that's part of our challenge. Two very quick final questions. Secretary Kerry, uh, the, one of the criticisms of the President's proposed uh, AUMF is that it does not make clear that it is in fact this AUMF and not the 2001 AUMF that governs this conflict. If we passed a ISIL-specific AUMF, would the administration have any objection to specifically uh, saying that um, the ISIL AUMF supersedes any preceding authorization for the use of military force in this engagement? Uh, Senator, Senator only, only if it was absolutely clear that there was no uh, limitation whatsoever with respect to the other activities authorized by the 2001 AUMF, because that's the principal authorization with respect to Al-Qaeda and other efforts. So the, pres the, the President has made it clear that if the Congress passes an authorization specifically, that is what he will rely on with respect to ISIS. And if that's the case, there's no reason not to have language that says that this as is long the as only authorization. As long as it's clear that it's, it's not ISIS specific. As long as it's clear it doesn't reach any of the other activities authorized by the 2001, correct. Uh -huh. Finally, um, Secretary Carter, over the weekend, Boko Haram in Nigeria declared its allegiance to ISIL. Would Boko Haram be considered a legitimate target under the language of the President's proposed authorization? The, um, uh, the language of the proposed authorization uh, uh, anticipates, as I indicated, the possibility of others, other groups allying with ISIL. And what the text says is that uh, the AUMF would cover such groups that associate with or fight alongside if they also have the intent of threatening Americans. So both of those tests would be applied so just under the saying, proposed AMF by the lawyers. So just saying that you're, you're have a lead, you swear allegiance will be enough then? 
No, it's not enough. That it also has point. to be a threat to Americans. Okay. That's what the language says. It says uh, uh, associated with, et cetera, ISIL, and threatening Americans. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you. At the outset, I want to thank you all as well for recognizing what happened this morning in my home, or last night in my home state of Florida. It's a reminder that the dangers our servicemen and women face isn't just when they're deployed, but it's inherently dangerous work even in their training. And so our thoughts and prayers go out to them and to their families and loved ones. Uh, Secretary Carter, I wanted to begin by asking you about Iran. Iran's goal is to become the regional, most dominant regional power. Is that accurate? I'm sorry, Iran's? Iran's goal is to become the regional hegemonic Probably power. true, yes. And in that realm, they see American military presence in the region as a threat or an impediment to that goal, correct? Probably to the achievement of some of their goals, yes. And certainly, they're not never excited to see additional American troops present anywhere in the Middle East. That's a fair statement. I, I can't tell what, it, what, it, what excites Senator, them. I, ca I can't imagine that, that our, our bombing ISIL is unwelcome to them, but I don't know that because uh, I, I, I don't know what they're thinking. Well, bombing ISIL is unwelcome to them. General Dempsey, you agree the Iranians are not fans of U.S. military presence in the Middle East. I think they have the same suspicion about us as that we have of them. But, but in general, they're not, when, when they see us in the region, they're not necessarily fans of U.S. military deployments anywhere in the Middle East. No, I wouldn't think so. Okay. Well, that's why I want to turn to you, Secretary Kerry. I, I believe that much of our strategy with regards to ISIS is being driven by a desire not to upset Iran so that they don't walk away from the negotiating table on the deal that you're working on. Tell me why I'm wrong. Because the facts completely contradict that. But I'm not at liberty to discuss all of them here for a lot of different reasons. In a classified session, I could, but at this delicate stage of the negotiations, I'm not sure that's advisable. So are you- The fact is, let, let me just- Well, but for the record, can you state that Iran's feelings about our military presence in the region and the fact that they would be upset if we increased military personnel on the ground- Senator, or let me- Increased targeting, for example, of Assad in Syria. Could you tell me today that under no circumstances is, the, is how Iran would react to an increase of U.S. military action against ISIS because as we heard from Secretary Carter, they are not fans of us bombing ISIS because it involves our presence in the region. Are you telling me that that is a non-factor in terms of how it would impact the negotiations? Or is that something you can't discuss in this setting? No, they would welcome our bombing additionally, uh, ISIS actually. Uh, they want us to destroy ISIS. They want to destroy ISIS. ISIS is a threat to them. It's a threat to the region. And I think you're misreading it if you think that there isn't a mutual interest with respect to Daesh between every country uh, in the region. So they're supportive of more ground. If the U.S. sent more military personnel into Iraq as trainers, advisors, logistical support, they would support that? Iran would support that? Well, they're not going to come out and openly support it, and they obviously would be nervous about it, but that they're not going to object if that's what it is. But the point is, you have bigger problems than that with that particular scenario because the Shia militia within Iraq uh, might have something to say about it. Uh, uh, Muqtadar al-Sadr, uh, uh, Hadi al-Amri, other people might obviously react very adversely to that. But what's important, uh, Senator, with respect to your question is to understand this. And I think this has been a misread by a lot of people up here on the Hill, to be honest with you. There is no grand bargain being discussed here in the context of this negotiation. This is about a nuclear weapon potential. That's it. And the President has made it absolutely clear they will not get a nuclear weapon. Now, the presumption by a lot of people up on the Hill here has been that we somehow aren't aware of, of that goal, even as we negotiate that goal. 
Our negotiation is calculated to make sure they can't get a nuclear weapon. And it's, it's, it's really almost insulting that the presumption here is that we're going to negotiate something that allows them to get a nuclear weapon. Well, I haven't discussed about the nuclear weapon, but I've discussed, and I'm not saying there's a grand bargain. What I'm saying is that I believe that our military strategy towards ISIS is influenced by our desire not to cross red lines that the not Iranians have the about U.S. military no. presence in the region. Absolutely not in the least. Okay. There's no consideration well, whatsoever as to how they or anybody else, we will do what is necessary in, in, in conjunction with our coalition. Remember, we have 62 countries, okay. including well, I want to talk five, about coalition. five Sunni countries that for the first time ever are engaged in military action in another country in the region. Well, that, and that's why I want to touch on that point, because uh, General Dempsey a moment ago outlined uh, the need to have a broad coalition that I imagine involves these Sunni uh, countries, for example, the Jordanians, uh, the Saudis, uh, the UAE, and others. These are also countries, by the way, that are deeply concerned about Iran. And they feel, as, is it not right that they feel that we've kept them in the dark about our negotiations with Iran? In essence, the way we've proceeded with our negotiations in Iran have impacted our trust level with these critical allies in this coalition. Senator, that, that, that actually is flat wrong also. Flat wrong. They said so I, publicly. I just, uh, it's flat wrong. I just came back from a meeting in the Gulf in Riyadh. I met with King Salman, who completely supported what we're doing. I met with all of the GCC members. They all sat around a table, and they all articulated their support for what we're doing, and they believe we are better off trying to prevent them from getting a bomb diplomatically first, providing, of course, that it actually prevents them from getting that bomb. That's the test of this. And a whole bunch of people are trying to give this a grade before the test has even been taken. So you're, you're saying here today that our allies in the region, our Sunni allies, the Saudis, the UAE, the Egyptians, and others, are perfectly comfortable no, with where the negotiations I didn't stand say at this that. moment. I did not say that. They are not perfectly comfortable. They're nervous. They're apprehensive. Of course they are. They want to make sure that, in fact, just as members of Congress want to make sure that the deal that is struck, if one can be struck now, will, in fact, prevent them from getting Have you shared with them the details of where it stands right now? We've shared considerable details with them, absolutely. And we are they apprehensive them. about that, or are they comfortable with what you shared with them? Uh, they're comfortable with what we shared with them, and Saud al-Faisal, the senior foreign minister in the world, I might add, uh, publicly sat with me at a press conference in which he articulated their support for what we're doing. Okay, General Dempsey, I want to ask you, because we talked about this a moment ago, part of what's happening here is a second concentric circle that ISIS is pursuing beyond its core in Syria and Iraq, and that we've seen that emerge in Libya. We're starting to see signs of it emerge in Afghanistan. First, can you can comment about what ISIS, or any of you could comment about what we're seeing with ISIS with regards to the competition between them and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban to absorb groups in Afghanistan? And second, how does this AUMF that's proposed before us today allow us to form a strategy that allows us to deal with that second ring of threats uh, of ISIS absorbing other groups in the region? It, the TTP is notably that um, splinter group of the Taliban who has rebranded themselves to the ISIL ideology. And the, to answer your question on the AUMF, the AUMF would give me the authority to make recommendations to the Commander-in-Chief how to deal with ISIL wherever it shows up if the two conditions that the SECDEF mentioned exist. Number one, that they have affiliated themselves with the ideology, but number two, 
that they demonstrate an intent to uh, threaten U.S. interests, either regionally or globally. And just my last point here. In Afghanistan, we still have a significant presence of servicemen and women, uh, among other Americans, and much more so than, than in other parts of the world, where they're now uh, getting groups to align themselves. Uh, the growth of an ISIS affiliate and or uh, pledged group in Afghanistan could potentially pose a significant threat to American personnel in Afghanistan, potentially. It will, it will initially pose a threat to the government of Afghanistan and could, over time, pose a threat to us. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank the three of you for your incredible service to our country. We very much appreciate it during an extremely challenging time. Uh, first, let me say I, I supported uh, the uh, use of force resolution that was reported from this committee in the last Congress, as did every Democrat. And as I was listening to uh, Secretary Carter explain the objectives of an authorization for use of military force and thought about what we had recommended, it satisfied, I think, every one of your concerns. And I was somewhat surprised because I think some Republicans were reluctant to support the use of force in the last Congress because the administration had not come forward with a request. In fact, that was, was said by many of my Republican colleagues. So I was somewhat surprised that the administration did not bring forward a, a resolution that was more consistent with what we developed in the last Congress and would have accomplished every one of the objectives that Secretary Carter pointed out. So let me bring up three concerns in the time that I have. Uh, some have already been raised, but I will try to get through as much of this as possible. Uh, first, uh, dealing with the uh, 2001 authorization and why there is nothing included in your request that deals with the 2001. Secondly, to deal with the interpretation of enduring offensive ground combat operations. And third, how you will determine associated forces. All three give me concern. In regards to the 2001 authorization, as been pointed out, that was an authorization passed rather easily by Congress to go against those that were responsible for the attack of our country on September 11, 2001. That's what the resolution says. I think many of us are surprised that that authorization could be used today against ISIS in Syria. The 2001 authorization is now the longest running use of force in American history four years longer than the Vietnam War, eight years longer than the Revolutionary War, 10 years longer than World War II. About one-third of the authorizations for use of military force passed by Congress have included limitations of time. So that's not an unusual uh, provision to be placed uh, in, the, uh, in a resolution because Congress and administration need to work together. As Secretary Carter pointed out, circumstances change, it's important that Congress and the administration speak with a united voice. And Secretary Carter, I was very impressed by your comments about the constitutional responsibilities between Congress and administration, and you fully understand uh, a three-year sunset on the ISIS-specific uh, authorization for the use of force. And quoting from your statement, to me, this is sensible and principled provision of the AUMF, even though I cannot assure that the counter-ISIL campaign will be completed in three years. So, Senator Murphy and I have introduced uh, a bill that would limit the 2001 authorization to the same three-year provision that you have in the ISIS-specific uh, ISIS resolution. And if Congress so, so chose to include a three-year sunset on the 2001 authorization, 
Would it be your view that that would be uh, a sensible and principled provision for Congress to include, even though you could not assure that the military operation against uh, the, those responsible for the attack on our country on September the 11th, 2001, can be completed in that time, that it be up to the next administration to come back as it would in the ISIL campaign? Um, uh, uh, Senator, uh, thank you for that. Um, I, uh, I can't give you a clear answer to that question. Let me say why. The 2001 uh, authorization of the use of military force covered al-Qaeda and its successive generations, which have now extended for 14 years. There is still an al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. They call themselves that, and they intend to attack this country. And we need to protect ourselves. But isn't and that also true of ISIS? we need the authority to protect ourselves. Isn't that also true of ISIS? And, well, I, 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 there's a different, so there's a, now a 14-year history of the tenacity of al-Qaeda and its offshoots and their, their intent to attack our country. And I think you have to take that into account about whether it makes sense to put a sunset on that one. This one that we're embarking on with ISIL is a new campaign, a new group. And so, as I said in my statement, I, 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 I respect the desire to uh, have a sunset uh, 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 clause that doesn't derive from any characteristic of the campaign that I know of yet that would predict that it will wrap up uh, <clears throat> within three years. But I think we have history in the case of Al-Qaeda that it has, it has perdured, it has lasted uh, quite a long time, and I think that ought to inform whether a sunset for the authorities contained. Mr. Secretary, if this is a new campaign, sense. if this is a new campaign, I don't understand how you can use a 2001 authorization to justify the use of force. I think you can't have it both ways. So I don't understand the distinction there when you're saying that you're, it's a new campaign, we don't know what's going on, and yet we still can use a 2001 authorization that was specific against the attack on our country. Well, I think the I think maybe another way of, of getting at your, your question, Senator, is the President has indicated a desire and a willingness to revisit the 2001. And we're trying to help that AUMF, um, which I also uh, 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 think uh, makes sense in view of what you said. It's been 14 years. The only thing that I would say, and the only reason I'm hesitating here, is that we have to protect ourselves against al-Qaeda and its success. And, and, These and guys the are still out there 14 years after 9-11. And our Congress will meet again with the, uh, and can always take up, as they will, I assume, if this resolution was passed in the next Congress with the next administration. I want to just get one more question in on the enduring offensive ground combat troops. I looked at my app on my phone here to get definition of what enduring is, and it came up as lasting permanent on my iPhone. So would you tell me why the term enduring offensive ground combat operations could not be interpreted to include operations such as our military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, since we didn't intend our troops to be there on a permanent basis, that we were liberating, we were not offensive. Why couldn't you, our administration, interpret that language to include a ground campaign similar to what we saw in Iraq? I'll, I'll let Senator uh, 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 Kerry answer. Uh, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but the interpretation that I gave to that phrase 
is the interpretation that the, uh, those who drafted the AOMF uh, make of it, and it is intended in the first instance clearly to rule out the kind of campaign we waged in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, because we don't foresee that that kind of campaign is necessary. And that's one of the things that those words is supposed to cover. Let me ask uh, 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 Secretary Kerry to add to that. Well, I think the President, uh, Senator, has been particularly clear about this. And uh, there's a huge distinction between the kinds of operations that were conducted in Afghanistan and, and Iraq where clearly we committed a very significant number of troops for a long period of time to offensive actions on the ground. The President has ruled that out. And what he has done is, I think, offered you confining definitions that provide uh, the limitations here. And I think the English language provides them also, frankly. I don't happen to agree with General Allen's comment here about two weeks to two years. I don't think anybody contemplates years or a year. That's not in the thinking of the President nor any of the considerations he's had. What he's thought of only, and what General Dempsey has been particularly clear about, is not giving up the option under some particular circumstances where you might want somebody on a special forces nature or embedded nature or somehow to be accompanying people, to be assisting in some way. I don't want to go into all the parameters of that, but I think it's been very clear how limited it is. Or uh, a, an effort to protect or defend U.S. personnel or citizens, which is momentary. An effort to rescue people in some particular instance. Uh, perhaps a uh, uh, specific targeted operation against Dash leadership, for instance, uh, perhaps uh, intelligence collection and sharing. I mean, there's a range that have been laid out, but the whole purpose here is to kind of have a concept that's well understood, that is extremely limited, but not so limiting that our military can't do what it needs to do in some situation to protect America's interests or American personnel. But, but it is not contemplating years. Uh, not even months, to, to my knowledge. What it would contemplate is some uh, current uh, operation along the lines that I just described. I've just pointed out, and just ending, that the language we used in 2001, I think most of us would not have thought it would be used today. This authorization goes to the next administration. So the next administration would have the authority and may have a totally different view on that. It may indeed, Senator, which is precisely why President Obama said, I'm going to put it in the three-year range. And he specifically thought that through. He said, you know, I don't want the new president to come in and face the kind of choice that I faced on my desk day one, which had to be made within 30 days with respect to Afghanistan. Uh, so he gave it the, the distance of the year to allow the administration to get its people in place, to evaluate and make a decision. But most importantly, this is where there is a broadly accepted and absolutely clear congressional responsibility. Congress will step in. You will have the authority. I mean, I would think you'd be welcoming this opportunity to double check the next administration, to be able to make sure this is accomplishing the precise goals you want. In, in fact, um, you know, I would think this would be undebated by Congress in that respect, although I understand 
there are principles where people say, you know, we don't want any limitations at all. But this certainly fits within the capacity to get a major vote out of Congress. And may I say to everybody, you know, that's something else you've got to think about here. When I testified in December and when I testified two weeks ago, I, I think I made it clear that our interests are best served if there is a very powerful vote in support of this. We don't have a message of America's commitment and of our willingness to stay at it and get the job done if this is, you know, a marginal vote in, in, in the Congress. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We do welcome this opportunity. We also welcome the opportunity to weigh in on any final Iran deal and look forward to that. And with that, uh, Senator Johnson. You know, words matter. And I know we're here really discussing specific language on authorization for use of military force, but this is puzzling. You know, Secretary Kerry, you said this authorization needs to be extremely limited, but show the commitment of the United States. I mean, I don't see how you how you reconcile those two terms. There have been an awful lot of loose statements here. Let, let's, let's talk about the joint resolution passed of September 18, 2001, and why the current activity is tenuously connected to that at best. That joint resolution was to authorize the use of the United States Armed Forces against those responsible for the recent attacks launched against the United States. Specifically, it said that the President is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future attacks of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. I don't hear anything about successor organizations. So again, I, I'm puzzled by the fact that the administration is firmly of the view that they already have statutory authority to conduct what they're conducting. No, no, and I guess there's really nobody pushing back that hard on that. But now, now we're talking about a new authorization, and, and I'm puzzled by the fact that any commander-in-chief, if they ble already have, believe they have the authority to do what's, what's being conducted, why would they want to limit that in any way, shape, or form? You know, particularly when, Secretary Kerry, you said you want to dispel any doubt sent an unmistakable message. Let me just read two other authorizations. This is the authorization we're discussing, because we're talking about it, but let's talk about the specific words. It says, the President is authorized, subject to, okay, subject to the limitations in subsection C, to use the armed forces of the United States as the President determines to be necessary and appropriate against ISIL or associated persons or forces as defined in section five. Man, this sounds like a contract. C, limitations. The authority granted in subsection A does not authorize the use of United States Armed Forces in enduring offensive ground combat operations. Okay, that's not a real dispelling of doubt. Uh, duration of this authorization, the authorization for use of military force shall terminate three years after the date of the enactment of this joint resolution unless reauthorized. I don't know, I'm not seeing that sending an unmistakable message. Let, let me read you one, one other authorization. This was passed on December 8th, 1941. The President is hereby authorized and directed to employ the entire naval and military forces of the United States and the resources of the government to carry on war against the Imperial Government of Japan and to bring the conflict to a successful termination. All of the resources of the country are hereby pledged by the Congress of the United States. 
Now, if we're discussing language to dispel all doubt, to send an unmistakable message, General Dempsey, which, which authorization as a military man would you want to have at your back? Senator, I'm not going to compare something from 1941, which was a state-on-state -state global conflict, to, the con to a conflict with a non-state actor. Um, I was consulted on this AOMF. Secretary Carter, it's always puzzled me, why would anybody want to pick the fight, a fight with the United States? Why is ISIS putting out on videotape the beheadings, the, the brutal, the barbaric beheadings of, of Americans, of other Westerners? Why would they do that? Why would anybody want to pick the fight with the United States? Uh, Senator, I can uh, only uh, say uh, and read as you can hear and read what they say, uh, uh, which is that they intend to create a uh, Islamic State, and they regard us and our friends and allies and standing in the way of that. Uh, and therefore, they have shown their willingness to attack Americans and attack our allies and interests. But again, I, I would never pick a fight with Chairman Jempsey's military. Well, I think you know, I, so. I, the I only, think the I only, said the in my statement, I would, the only way I would pick that fight is the way I would pick that fight is if I really didn't think America would be serious about coming back to defeat me to try and accomplish that goal that President Obama established. I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the current ground forces currently allied against ISIS. Uh, General Dempsey, do we, do we know uh, basically what the force structure is? I mean, how, how many Iraqi security forces are there? How many Kurds? How many in the, Sh the Shiite militias that are uh, Iranian, uh, you know, sponsored by Iran? I mean, what is the current force structure of boots on the ground? The, uh, the number, I'd have to get back to you for the record on the exact number, Senator. Well, I'm, I'm happy to get ballpark figures. Okay, well, let's talk about the Tikrit operation, for example. There's uh, approximately 1,000 Sunni tribal uh, folks. There's one brigade of the Iraqi security forces, which numbers approximately 3,000, a couple of hundred of their, of their uh, CTS, their counterterrorist service. Those are the MOD-sponsored forces. And there's approximately 20,000 of the popular mobilization force, which are the Shia militia. So, so the Shia militia dramatically outnumber the Iraqi security forces in this? They do. And the Shia militias are pretty much Iranian-sponsored, correct? They, I would describe them as uh, Iranian-trained and somewhat Iranian-equipped. Secretary Carter, you, I think you said that uh, the, the outcome of Tikrit will explain an awful lot of things. I mean, what do you mean by that? Uh, I believe it was General Dempsey who, 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 who made that statement, uh, so I'll let him explain himself, but I what agree with I it. By that? Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I meant by that, Senator. The, uh, there's no doubt that the, the combination of the uh, popular mobilization forces and the Iraqi security forces, and the tr they're going to they're gonna run ISIL out of Tikrit. The question is what comes after in terms of their willingness to let uh, Sunni families move back into their neighborhoods. Uh, whether they work to restore the basic services that are going to be necessary, or whether it results in atrocities and retribution. That's what I meant. Well, Senator Rubio was actually, you know, basically his line of questioning was laying out our concern that if it's Iran that is at the, the tip of the spear here, if, if they're the ones sponsoring the victories, they're going to have influence in Iraq, and that's going to be very, diff very, very difficult 
uh, very tenuous, uh, very dangerous for the regional peace, correct? Secretary Kerry, do you want to address that one? Aren't you concerned about Iran's growing influence in Iraq? I'm concerned about Iran's uh, growing efforts in the region. Uh, and we've made it very clear uh, that is an administration concern. Their influence in Yemen, their influence in uh, Beirut and Lebanon, their influence in Syria, in Damascus uh, and Hezbollah, uh, and of course their influence in Iraq. But I think you have to look uh, historically. I mean, a lot of things are happening right now in the region, to be honest with you. And um, the, the history between Persia, Persian Shia, and Arab world and Arab Shia is complicated. Uh, remember, Iraq and Iran had a 10-year war, eight to 10-year war. They were, people were gassed. Iranians did not respond with gas. Uh, there are a lot of, sort of interesting facets of, sort of how that played out. Uh, and yes, Iran's influence has uh, spread at this moment, and we're deeply concerned about it. But if, if you're concerned about it now, think of what happens. And I hear this, we heard it in the floor of the House uh, recently, and you hear it elsewhere, if they had a nuclear weapon and they were doing that. That's why this administration believes the first step is to prevent the access to the nuclear weapon or prevent their ability to develop a nuclear weapon. And that's our goal, first, to try to do that diplomatically. And if it cannot be achieved diplomatically, then we all have a lot of options available to us. But we are eyes wide open with respect to what is happening and all of those issues. We have made it clear to our friends in the region and elsewhere in the world they don't disappear. If we were to get an agreement to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon, and we're all satisfied that that, in fact, it will be the conclusion, we still have all these other issues with Iran. And we will all need to be working on the ways in which, and this is exactly what we're doing, GCC members, in fact, will be coming here to Washington the next month to continue the dialogue we had in the region uh, last week. Uh, and I'm confident that uh, we will, all of us together, uh, take the steps necessary to counter uh, what Iran is doing in other ways. My, my final point, and as quick as I'm not seeing the full commitment out of this administration, and as a result, we're seeing the growing influence, a very dangerous influence of Iran. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses. Uh, we are now in the eighth month of a war that began on the 8th of August. Uh, there has not been a congressional uh, authorization of the war, so, uh, except for the Foreign Relations Committee vote in December. No committee has taken it up. There's been no floor debate, and I view that as highly, highly challenging and, and disturbing in terms of the way the nation makes the most grave decision we're supposed to make. I do agree completely this authorization is needed. Uh, count me among many uh, members of Congress and others who believe that both the 01 and 02 authorizations are not sufficient to cover this military action. Uh, if, however, we act to authorize it, there is precedent for congressional authorizations after the beginning of military conflicts. There is that precedent. But if we do not act to authorize it, I think from a legal and precedential standpoint, it would be somewhat catastrophic. 
I also agree completely with the testimony of the witnesses that the authorization should be strong and it should be bipartisan. For those who are fighting this battle, who've been fighting it without Congress weighing in to indicate whether they think it's in the national interest or not, I can't imagine asking people to risk their lives with us not having done our job. And if we were to pass it in a narrow way or a partisan way, that would not send a message that would make people who are risking their lives feel very good about the risk that they are taking. I want to talk about the ground troop provision from a definitional standpoint, from a mission standpoint. The language, no enduring offensive ground combat operations, is in the proposed authorization, and it's given some, some tone and coloration by the President's transmittal letter. The President's transmittal letter says, my administration's draft AMF would not authorize long-term, large-scale ground combat operations like those our nation conducted in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you've used that as sort of a limitation, not like Iraq or Afghanistan. Let me ask you this. In the first Gulf War, 697,000 American troops were deployed overseas uh, for up to seven months. Would that be an enduring ground combat operation under this definition? Uh, Senator, uh, I, I think an operation that large of a state-on-state uh, state, um, uh, operation is not something that we foresee as the kind of campaign we would uh, mount against ISIL and not, and then not foreseen by this AUMF. You, I want to get, if I can just say that the fundamental nature of this campaign, and General Dempsey made this clear, is one in which, uh, and, 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 and Secretary Kerry also, in which we are seeking the lasting defeat of ISIL. To get a lasting defeat of ISIL, we need to have somebody on the ground who sustains the victory after uh, the ISIL forces are defeated. That's why we're relying on, that's why our fight is basically an enabling fight. And, Secretary and we're, Carter, trying, I, we're trying to develop the ground forces that would do it. I, Very I wanna, different from an Iran-Iraq, or a U.S. Right. Uh, 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 assault on I, I want to ask you about that very point. but. I'm trying to figure out, is there some meaning to this definition that we could apply to say, no, this isn't contemplated? And so I'd like to ask uh, General Dempsey and Secretary Kerry, um, 697,000 American troops for seven months, is that an enduring ground combat, combat operation? That isn't contemplated, to use the words you, uh, the way you characterize them, and it wouldn't uh, lead to the defeat of ISIL, and so I can, I can say uh, with credibility, no. That, that that would not be allowed under this That's language. That's correct. Secretary Kerry? I agree. It would not be allowed under this language. With respect to the concept that Secretary Carter raised, and I've raised this with some of you before, the Foreign Relations Committee has had two meetings recently with some of our very strong allies in this mission, King Abdullah of Jordan and uh, Sheikh Tamim, the Emir of Qatar. Uh, Qatar is the, the uh, location of the current combined air operations uh, 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 center at uh, Al-Udid Air Force Base. Um, the King of Jordan said to us, this is not your fight, it's our fight, when we were asking about the ground troops. This is not your fight, it's our fight. ISIS is born and bred in this region. It's a terrorist threat that's born and bred in this region. They are claiming the mantle of a religion that we revere and they're perverting it for a horrible pervert perverted end. So it is not America's fight. We want your help, but we have to be all in and battling this ourselves. Sheikh Tamim was even a little bit clear. We don't want American ground troops. We don't want American ground troops because it could send the message 
that this is the United States against ISIL or this is the West against ISIL, which could be a recruiting bonanza for ISIL. This needs to be our battle, our ground effort, and we appreciate your support on the airstrike side. Um, so I'm looking for metrics in terms of if we all agree with the proposition that this needs to be a region policing itself with the assistance of the United States, tell me what that means with respect to what ground troop levels could be appropriate or inappropriate. I mean, just as an example, on the airstrike campaign of the 2,800 airstrikes, the U.S. has done 80% of the airstrikes. The airstrikes is not the region with the U.S. helping a little bit. We've done 80% of the airstrikes. The airstrikes is U.S. So what I'm worried about with respect to the ground troops is less the words, but the concept. And Secretary Carter, you were getting at it. This has got to be the region's fight against its own terrorism. If they're willing to be all in, then we should help. But if it gets to the point where we have to contemplate significant number of ground troops, it almost means that it's been lost from the beginning. If the region won't weigh in to battle this own, their own terrorist threat, there's sort of no amount of ground troops we could put in to Iraq or Syria to win the battles there. We can keep Americans safe here, but we can't create a recruiting bonanza for ISIL. So talk to me a little bit about, um, I understand because the President has said in his letter how he would like to use ground troops, and I'd rather have a, an authorization that said that. But I see a real danger of a ground troop creep here converting this into not the region policing its own terrorism, but like the airstrike campaign that's 80% U.S., it's a U.S. mission. And I'd love your thoughts about how we guard against that, both as a mission matter and as a matter of thinking about how to potentially give this some, some flesh in the definition. Well, Senator, I think that everything the President has said, I think this, this authorization itself in its current form guards against that. But the most significant guard against that is um, uh, what King Abdullah said, and I think General Dempsey's and, and Secretary Carter's and all of our uh, belief that, that, you know, the enduring transformation that has to take place here is not gonna take place if the United States just comes in and we're to knock out ISIL and that's it, go away. Not gonna happen. We could do that, actually. We have that capacity. But we're not asking to do that, nor are they asking us to do that because I think they understand that the implications of that would be actually to aid in the recruitment, to create a bigger problem than we face today. And, and in answer to the question was asked earlier, why, does, uh, why do these guys like taking us on to some degree? Because if it's just us, that's how they grow. And that's what they want. And we're not getting suckered into that. That's why we built the 62 coalition. That's why we worked so hard to get these five um, Arab countries engaged uh, in the kinetic activities with us is precisely to deny them that narrative. And so uh, as we go forward here, we think the best thing that can happen is what is happening now. This is in fact, uh, you know, indigenous. It's springing up. The Sunni are gaining confidence in, in Ambar. There are several battles taking place right now. In fact, not just in Tikrit. There are two others, two out of three, where, in fact, we are playing a central role in the other two, hasn't been as heralded, but it's making a difference. And the Sunni are, are prosecuting that. So as long as we continue to work on the integration, the uh, internal uh, inclusivity of Iraq and its government, as long as we continue to 
uh, help the Iraqis to be able to do this themselves, help the region to feel empowered by it. That is a long-term recipe for the United States not to have as much risk and not to have to put ourselves on the line in the way we have historically. So we think we're on the right track here, and in fact, the very strategy we're pursuing adheres to the very standards that you most want to have in place in order to protect against the mission creep. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for the testimony. Um, this committee uh, had asked, particularly the, the chairman committee, had asked uh, months and months ago uh, for uh, an AUMF or language to come from the administration. We're glad that it's here. I think that it's overdue. I think it would have been, uh, uh, would have been useful to have that language or some kind of language from the administration early on. I know that the administration was uncomfortable with the language that was passed by this committee in December. I, I think many of us were uncomfortable with the limitations that were there. Uh, but I think at the same time, uh, we all recognize that we may have to en endure some uh, degree of ambiguity in the language, and we're seeing it expressed or manifested here when we talk about what would be considered enduring or what would not in exchange for a resolution that can pass with a bipartisan majority. And uh, that's what I want to just explore for a minute, is at what point does it, uh, does it become, uh, since the administration believes that you have the legal authority to move under the old AUMF, at what point does it become uh, not useful to have an AUMF uh, that would be passed uh, simply uh, with a partisan vote, for example? Would that not be uh, useful? Is that, uh, is that worse than no AUMF at all? Secretary Kerry. Well, is that, is that worse than no AUMF now? Absolutely. I mean, I, it, it, look, we're, we're convinced we have the authority. That's not the issue here. Um, and, and Senator Johnson asked about that earlier. I mean, we have the authority because ISIL was Al-Qaeda. What they changed was their name and then grew worse. But for years, I think it was about 13 years, uh, somewhere in that vicinity, they, uh, going back to uh, uh, 2011, it called itself Al-Qaeda in Iraq. That's who they were, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And uh, they, they have uh, an extensive history of conducting attacks against U.S. Uh, coalition, going way back during that period of time. They have had a long relationship between Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. They viewed themselves, and still do actually, as the uh, legitimate heirs of the Osama bin Laden mantle. They still view that. They just see themselves in a more aggressive uh, term, and that's why they've had some disagreement in tactics with Al-Qaeda, uh, whom they separated from. But separating doesn't change where they came from, who they were, when we first engaged in the fight with them. And, and so this, you know, there is a legitimacy to the 2001 effort because it began a long time ago against this very group that simply changed its name and some of its tactics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change the threat to the United States. So we could obviously, and, and we will, continue to prosecute that, but, you know, Senators themselves have raised this concern that we're operating under this longest AUMF ever. 
So there is a much greater clarity and a much greater force that comes from a statement from the Congress that this reincarnated entity and this current, uh, uh, this current uh, uh, metastasizing that's taking place uh, is not going to be tolerated specifically. And that is important. And, and frankly, to also answer an earlier question, are there some questions from some people about uh, the staying power of the United States of America? Sometimes you hear that. I hear it in the course of diplomacy. And I think it is important to answer that in this context at this time. Right. I, I like uh, Secretary Carter's formulation of the, you know, the need. Uh, it needs substantively, this AUMF, to provide necessary flexibility um, for the you know, forces to, to be waged. Um, and second, uh, the message you just sent, that it needs to send a message to our allies and to our adversaries that, one, we're in it for the long haul, and two, we back up the efforts uh, of our allies, and, and frankly, that they understand what their role is as well here. And so I, I just to end it, I, I do believe that uh, an AUMF is, is, uh, is certainly uh, needed here if we have a campaign that's going to go on for a long time. I believe it will go on longer than three years, but I'm not troubled by the sunset provision. Certainly, we can come back after three years and revisit this with a new administration. And uh, I might uh, wish for more firm language uh, with regard to uh, what an enduring force is or whatever else, but I think we need to value also uh, language that can get a good bipartisan majority to send that message. That's important, too. And uh, as we know, in this body, we never get everything we want. So I, I commend the administration for coming forward, for listening to us on this committee uh, as this AUMF uh, was formulated, and for consulting and listening to others as well. So I, I hope we can move forward, and I uh, appreciate the testimony. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to uh, all of our witnesses. Thank you for your extraordinary gestures to uh, come back to this committee over and over again, both in private and in public, to work with us uh, on this, the most important question that the Foreign Relations Committee and the Congress takes up, the question of when to commit um, U.S. personnel into war. Um, I, I remain as frustrated as many of my colleagues with this question over these uh, definitions. Uh, I think the problem is in part that uh, every different member of the administration we talk to does seem to have a slightly different interpretation of what these words mean. Uh, and I can't blame them because, as I think uh, Secretary Carter said, there's no historical operational definition of these words. But uh, I think the, 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 the lack of consistency has hampered our efforts to uh, get on uh, the same page together. And, uh, and if we resort to just an understanding that these words mean something less than what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, then that really is no limitation at all. Uh, and, and I'm barely a lawyer. I practiced for about four years. But I do remember the concept of uh, statutes being void for vagueness. Uh, I, I fear that this would suffer that same uh, problem if we weren't able to get a consistent understanding of what those terms mean. Um, I, I want to ask uh, one point of clarification on a piece of this terminology, and, and that's um, back to you, Secretary Carter. Um, I was pleased at the language in the uh, draft from the administration defining 
um, uh, associated forces, uh, including this limitation that it would be uh, restricted to uh, organizations that were actively engaged in fights against the United States. But I just want to clarify, you said in your testimony that it would be limited to associated forces uh, that were actively engaged against the United States, but the language actually says um, engaged in hostilities against the United States or our coalition partners. So as to this question of whether Boko Haram is uh, covered under this, it's not really a question as to whether they're actively engaged in hostilities against the United States, so long as they're engaged in hostilities against a coalition partner. Um, isn't it true that this authorization would give the United States the ability, um, subject to the other restrictions in the authorization, uh, to engage in hostilities against that organization? I, I think you're reading it right. Um, and so, given that reading, let me just ask Senator Menendez's question again. Would uh, Boko Haram uh, pledging uh, uh, allegiance to uh, ISIS be covered uh, if the country in which they were uh, engaging in hostilities was a coalition partner of the United States? Well, uh, I can't give you a, a, a legal answer, but I can give you a common sense answer uh, to, to that. This is a AUMF that really focuses on the fight against ISIL. Uh, we have other authorities, which have already been alluded to in the 2001, which also uh, cover other situations, including some that may involve Boko Haram, uh, that allow us to take action to protect ourselves in that case. Uh, but this is really focused on ISIL uh, and, and the associated forces there uh, it, it, when they engage in operations against us or our coalition partners, as the text says. Uh, and that can uh, be interpreted, but has not yet been interpreted to cover other groups like Boko Haram. Uh, but uh, just to be clear, under the 2001 authority, and this is important to me because we, you know, we've really got to protect ourselves, uh, there are authorities under the 2001 also that could extend to Boko Haram depending upon their behavior and the kind of actions that we needed to take to to, uh, to protect ourselves. So these are always, in my experience, and again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm just observing this as Secretary of Defense, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, our councils try to interpret the law in such a way that we are acting lawfully and consistent with the intent of the enabling legislation and that we're able to take actions to protect ourselves. And they don't always, sometimes they, get to those determinations when a particular instance arises. Um, but I think it's important when we have this, and this is the last point I'll, I'll make, um, to err on the side of flexibility. I think someone said earlier, well, this language could seem to allow an awful lot, uh, the how part of the provision. And uh, it does. The, the president, I think, is, is if you're hearing different things, the thing I would listen to is what the president said. And he said that this, uh, he does not foresee and this language does not authorize the kind of thing that Iraq and Afghanistan represented. And then he gave some examples of the kind of campaign that we intend to, to wage, which Secretary Kerry noted earlier, ones in which we are enabling a force which provides the lasting victory against ISIL. That's our approach, because that's the right approach to getting a lasting victory uh, against uh, ISIL. But I, I, I think in my role, and in, in the chairman's role, 
the, uh, some latitude there in the language is appreciated because we need to be able to do what we need to do to protect ourselves. And this, this encompasses the, the campaign against ISIL as we now foresee it, and I think one can reasonably foresee it, and that's essential because we need to, um, to uh, win this campaign. Um, uh, just got a minute remaining. Um, there's been a lot of talk about sending consistent bipartisan messages to our enemies, uh, and I, I agree. I don't think there's been much division on the message that we've been sending to ISIS, whether or not we have an authorization. We stand united in our belief that we should take the fight to them. Uh, in the last uh, few days, uh, there has been significant division between our two parties on the message that we are sending to Iran. Uh, an exceptional, I would argue, unprecedented letter from 47 of our colleagues uh, to the Ayatollah himself um, that many of us believe uh, will have the effect and has the intention of undermining the authority of a president. Um, Secretary Kerry, um, I, you're here before us. This is a subject of uh, great debate uh, within the Senate today. Um, what do you believe are the ramifications of this letter? What do you believe is your interpretation of the facts of that letter, which state essentially that any agreement signed by the United States expires the minute a new president is sworn into office? Um, share with us your thoughts on whether this is helpful or hurtful to our efforts to try to divorce Iran from any future nuclear ambition. Well, Senator uh, and members of the committee, my uh, reaction uh, to the letter was utter disbelief. Uh, during my 29 years here in the Senate, I never heard of, nor even uh, heard of it being proposed, anything comparable to this. Uh, if I had, I can guarantee you, no matter what the issue and no matter who was president, uh, I would have certainly rejected it, I think. No one is questioning anybody's right to dissent. Any senator can go to the floor any day and raise any of the questions that were raised in that. But to write uh, to the leaders in the middle of a negotiation, particularly the leaders that, that they have criticized other people for even engaging with or writing to, to write them and suggest that, uh, uh, that uh, they're going to give a constitutional lesson, which, by the way, was absolutely incorrect, is quite stunning. Uh, this letter ignores more than two centuries of precedent in the conduct of American foreign policy. Um, it, it uh, you know, formal treaties obviously require the advice and consent of the United States Senate. That's in the Constitution. But the vast majority of international arrangements and agreements do not. And around the world today, we have all kinds of executive agreements that we deal with. Protection of our troops, the recent agreement we just did with Afghanistan, uh, any number of non-controversial and broadly uh, you know, supported foreign policy goals. The executive agreement is a necessary tool of American foreign policy. It's been used by presidents of both parties for, 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 long, for centuries, literally. And it is recognized and accepted by Congress from the earliest period of American history. Now, with respect to the talks, 
We've been clear from the beginning. We're not negotiating a, quote, legally binding uh, plan. We're negotiating a plan that will have in it a capacity for enforcement. We don't even have diplomatic relations with Iran right now. And the senator's letter erroneously asserts that this is a legally binding plan. It's not. That's number one. Number two, it's incorrect when it says that Congress could actually modify the terms of an agreement at any time. That's flat wrong. They don't have the right to modify an agreement reached executive to executive between country, between leaders of a country. Now, sure, could a president, another president, come in with a different attitude? Uh, no president, I think, if this agreement meets its task and does what it's supposed to do in conjunction with China, Russia, France, Germany, Great Britain, all of whom are going to either sign off or not sign off on an agreement. I'd like to see the next president, if all of those countries have said this is good and it's working, turn around and just nullify it on behalf of the United States. That's not going to happen. So I have to tell you that, uh, uh, you know, knowing what we know about this, uh, uh, this risks undermining the confidence that foreign governments in thousands of important agreements commit to between the United States and other countries. And it purports to tell the world that if you want to have any confidence in your dealings with America, uh, they have to negotiate with 535 members of Congress. And that is both untrue and profoundly a bad suggestion to make, I think. But aside from the legalities, this letter also raises questions of judgment and policy. We know that there are people in Iran who are opposed to any negotiated arrangement with the P5 plus one. And we know that a comprehensive solution is not going to happen if Iran's leaders are not willing to make hard choices about the size and scope and transparency of the nuclear program. And we know that a nuclear-armed Iran is unacceptable. Mr. Secretary, I know this is a well-written speech. But not a speech, you've been my at friend. This, for this five is not minutes. a speech. Yeah. This is a statement about I'm the gonna... impact of this irresponsible letter. And you have a and lot the of letter does to not do have that. legal yeah. authority. Yeah. And and uh, you know, I think you have to ask what people are trying to accomplish. The the author of the letter says he doesn't want these agreements to be made, and he thinks before the judgment is even made that it's a, a mistake. Yeah. So we'll see where we wind up. Good. But Thank you. but. I'm asked by one senator the impact, and I'm laying out to the committee what the impact is. And five I'm sorry minutes and 26, five hear. minutes and 26 seconds later, you finished. I will say that I didn't sign the letter. Um, I'm very disappointed, though, that you've gone back on your statement that any agreement must pass muster with Congress. The way we pass muster here is we vote. And uh, I think all of us are very disappointed with the veto threat and the stiff arming that is taking place. But with that. But, but uh, Senator, Senator, let me just say, Mr. Chairman, let me just. Senator Gardner. Mr. Uh, Chairman. Think, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You have the right to vote any Mr. day. Mr. Chairman, you thank want. you for the time. You can, uh, Secretary Carter, uh, Secretary Kerry, General Dempsey, I want to thank you all for testifying today. Uh, this issue of an authorization of use of military force is one of the most serious issues that Congress can consider and look forward to our committee's hearings in consideration of the President's draft AUMF. I'm concerned about perhaps mixed messages from the administration regarding the ISIL threat. 
On March 3rd, General Austin stated that ISIL is losing its fight against us, yet only a week earlier on February 26th, Director of National Intelligence Clapper said the organization remains, and I quote, a formidable and brutal threat and is increasing its influence outside of Iraq and Syria. Uh, the threat from ISIL is real and requires a carefully coordinated strategy to ensure their complete destruction. I look forward to hearing from you today on defining the breadth and scope of our mission and how we can work together in ensuring its bipartisan success. I remain open-minded as to what gets the most support, but want to understand the details and uh, to fully know that we aren't unnecessarily restraining or restricting our ability uh, to win. To Secretary Carter, uh, in your remarks you state that I cannot, I quote from your statement, uh, your remarks, excuse me, I cannot tell you our campaign to defeat ISIL will be completed in three years, yet you believe that the sunset clause proposed by the President is a sensible and principled provision. Uh, you've heard Senator Johnson, Senator Flake, Senator Cardin, uh, Secretary Kerry, I'll talk about this. If the AUMF is not authorized within three years, the next president uh, could continue using other legal authorities such as the 2001 AUMF. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. That is the legal interpretation of the 2001 AUMF, although I should note that the intent, stated intent, uh, of the, the president is to revisit the 2001 AUMF after this one as well. He has said that, and that's a totally different subject, but I just note it. In your, in your uh, verbal comments here, you stated that uh, what a shame it would be to have a safe haven, and I believe you were talking, or safe harbor, uh, safe haven, excuse me, and I believe you were referring to the geographic uh, limitation. Could the three-year time limitation, though, be interpreted as a safe haven as well? Uh, it certainly uh, shouldn't be. It is not by uh, uh, anyone uh, involved in drafting the AUMF. It is, as I said, it doesn't. It 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 is not a number of or time period derived from our thinking about the campaign. It is derived from our constitution and from the uh, election cycle. And it's for sure in our system that there will be a new president in three years. It is for sure that he or she will have had one year, as Secretary Kerry said, to get themselves on their feet. And therefore, it foresees, it, it leaves latitude for this to be revisited. That's, that's something I respect as a consequence of our political system. It's not a consequence of the battlefield dynamics or the campaign uh, we're waging. Obviously, we hope to wrap it up as soon as possible, but I specifically said, and I believe, I cannot tell you it will be over in three years. Well, and, and I think we've, we've had testimony from others who have talked about the, you know, the, the, the ability to go for three years of, um, that we wouldn't be able to actually defeat in three years, but what we would be able to do in three years. And so is three years the right time? If you're going to put a time limit, should it be four? Should it be no time limit? I, again, the number three has to do with our political system, not with the defeat of ISIS. Uh, now, you can argue, uh, I, I respect people who want to not have a sunset uh, or something, but I don't think, I think the logic of three years derives from the nature of our political system. There is no foreseen, in my judgment, how long it will take to defeat uh, ISIL any more than you can begin any uh, any kind of military and, and campaign and be sure exactly how long it'll take. Thank you. And Secretary Carter, you said in your comments, too, that enduring, and I believe it was in response to uh, Senator Cardin, that enduring is not Iraq and Afghanistan. Can you give any more of a clear 
definition than than that than the term enduring? Uh, the, uh, the 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 president, when he explained the, the provision which describes how the campaign is authorized to um, be uh, waged, uh, explained that there he was not telling he he was not saying, and this is very sensible to me, enumerating the things that we could do. He was setting a limit, which is. Uh, the, which is the language of enduring uh, uh, offensive ground combat operations to mean something like Iraq and Afghanistan, not foreseen in our campaign, not asking for authority for it. He also gave some illustrations so is, of things is it, that would be. Just to file, just to go back on that, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to, okay. so I mean, that, that's the, the definition of the best we can get, though, is not Iraq or Afghanistan on the term enduring. Well, it's, it's an important principle, I think, that the AUMF reflects, uh, that makes sense to me, uh, not to try to enumerate everything that we may find it necessary to do in the course of this campaign. Instead, the text sets a outer limit. It does not try to enumerate everything. The President's language did illustrate some things, and Secretary Kerry uh, uh, cited them, but it doesn't try to say everything that we might have to do. And I, that's just, yeah. it, that's a good and sensible thing for a military campaign. You can't know everything you're going to And thank you, Secretary Cardin. I have two more questions I want to follow up. I want to, uh, Secretary Kerry, in response to Senator Rubio, you had said that uh, I believe that several of the Middle East counterparts that you have been talking to, you have shared with them details or some details of the negotiations with Iran. Am I misunderstanding your response? Uh, we've shared with them an outline of it. We haven't shared with them. Uh, well, actually, we've, we've briefed them. We've had our team go down and brief them and give them uh, On the sense. details of at least part Well, some of the, of the details, yeah. Are those the same details that we have been briefed on? You've gotten much greater in-depth. Okay, briefing. just making sure, thank you. Uh, and to, to, I believe to, General Dempsey, Secretary General Dempsey, um, talking about the, the Peshmerga a little bit, in terms of percentage, um, if you look at the ISF overall, uh, if you look at some of the, the fighting that is taking place and the efforts undertaken against ISIL, uh, what weight of effort would you say that the, the Peshmerga or other fighting in the region are, are currently pursuing against ISIL? The early successes against ISIL were largely through the Peshmerga, and that will evolve over time, but they've been carrying um, the majority of the effort thus far. Is, and, and by majority of effort, is there a weight, is that, you know, they're, they're carrying out a third, uh, three quarters, 90 percent? No, Senator, I can't actually put a the weight of effort. on it, but, but, but the, early, um, the early effort to blunt uh, ISIL's momentum were in the north and therefore with the Peshmerga. Uh, and reports uh, in the news and other places have stated the Peshmerga are only getting about 10 percent of the arms that have, rooted through, that have been rooted through Baghdad. Is that correct? <clears throat> Again, I, I don't have the percentage. I can certainly take it for the record. But there were some friction early on with the willingness of the government of Iraq to provide uh, weapons to the Peshmerga. But we think we've, we've managed our way through that. And so right now you feel confident that the process which we've, arms will reach our bill or has now been uh, settled and resolved? I am confident that we broke through the initial friction, but it doesn't mean it won't recur. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Sheen. Uh, 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Kerry and Secretary Carter and General Dempsey for being here. You know, I, I was very pleased when the administration sent over language for the AUMF. Um, I supported the AUMF that passed out of this committee in the last Congress because I think, as you all have said, that it's very important for our men and women who may be putting themselves at risk in the fight against ISIL to know um, that they have the support of Congress. I think it's very important for the American public to know, um, to hear this debate and to have, to know that Congress is supporting whatever action that we take. And with respect to that, one of the places where I think I would have issue with the language that was sent over by the administration is with respect to the reporting. Um, on the ongoing actions. As you all know, the language in the AUMF that the administration sent over says that the President shall report to Congress at least once every six months on specific actions taken pursuant to this authorization. If in looking at the AUMF that passed the committee in December, um, the reporting requirements are much more robust and much more comprehensive. So it requests reporting every 60 days. It also requests um, a comprehensive strategy report that would be clear to Congress and therefore to the American people the specific political and diplomatic objectives of the United States and the region. Um, it asks for clearly defined military objectives and the list goes on. And while I appreciate that um, there may be concern on the part of the executive branch about the level and the military, about the level of detail that's requested in that AUMF, it still seems to me that there is a benefit from providing additional detail about the mission and more frequent periodic reporting I think that's important not just for Congress. I think there are also some benefits to the operation because it makes it very clear in writing um, at some level what the plan is. And, you know, I was always taught that a plan is not a plan unless you've written it down somewhere, unless you've got something that you can refer to. So can I ask you first, I think Secretary Kerry, if you would respond to that and then perhaps Secretary Carter and General Dempsey might want to as well. Uh, Senator, of course, it, it, I mean, first of all, <laughs> uh, believe me, the plan is reduced to writing and the President reviews it and there are enormous amount of uh, analysis that goes into this. Um, so you're right, certainly, that you, you know, it needs to be specific. But I think there's a balance here between um, the amount of time and the numbers of uh, efforts that are put into reporting versus fighting the war, getting the job done. Sure. Uh, and, and I think you just don't want to tie people. I mean, I, I've asked the State Department to do a review of all the reports that we have to do and the numbers of people and person hours that are put into reports that, frankly, don't often get thoroughly read or digested. And so I think there's a briefing process that in my memory here, works pretty well. Uh, and, and six months, when you think of it, is, is a pretty fair amount of time. Um, 
it's not so much time in the course of this in terms of the review process that it doesn't do the job when you mix it also with the numbers of classified briefings, hearings that will take place, and so forth. So look, we're not trying to resist accountability, I assure you, but surely we could find a way to balance so that uh, there's not, uh, you know, an excess of paper churning and uh, process that actually gets in the way of getting things done. I think there's a balance, personally, and I haven't talked to my colleagues about it, but I would assume, I think, they might feel the same way. Um, and certainly, I would agree that there is a balance. I'm just questioning whether the balance in the language that has been sent over is, is the right balance. I don't know if Secretary Carter, if you or General Dempsey want to add I, anything. I, I, I think balance is the right, right word, and you're both seeking that, and um, uh, I, I, I agree with the principal. Um, I, and I would just add, Senator, it's, to, it's for you to determine how to exercise your oversight authority, but uh, it was aligned somewhat with the way we do our war powers reporting, and that made, there was a logic to that. Thank you. I'm, I want to make sure I understood something that I, I think you said, Secretary Carter, and that was that um, I didn't get this quote down quite exactly correct, but you said something about believing that the 2001 AUMF gives us the ability to protect ourselves if we're attacked. Did I understand that accurately? Well, it's more specific than that, and of course the legal interpretation is more specific than that, but it, the, I, I was simply saying that the existence of that since 2001 has provided the authority under which we've protected ourselves, and it's quite clear that we've needed to protect ourselves. But that. the question I have is, did we need that AUMF to protect ourselves if attacked? What, I, what I'm trying to figure out is why, um, is whether we should put, insert specific language in this AUMF that acknowledges that the fight that we are engaged in now is one that is covered by this AUMF and therefore the 2001 um, is not part of the action that we're doing now. I'll, I'll, I'll explain uh, my understanding and then ask uh, Secretary Kerry to add. Uh, the text of the AUMF that the, uh, has been submitted explicitly uh, states that this supersedes the 2002 AUMF. And the president has also right, indicated his willingness, his willingness, and I think his desire to revisit the 2001 uh, AUMF. The only thing I would say uh, is that it's important that as we do that, uh, I, 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 I understand the desire to revisit the 2001 uh, AUMF. We do need the continuing authority that this new one does not provide to continue to protect us against others, not ISIL. Uh, we need some authority to do that and, uh, in order to protect the country. And if we replace the 2001, that's fine with me as long as it gives us the authority to protect ourselves. Which I Can I just get a clarification, Mr. Chairman? Um, I've seen press reports that the White House is open to Congress inserting language, legislative language on this point, as we did um, when we passed out of the committee, the AUMF in December. Uh, Secretary Kerry, do you have, do you know if, if that's correct, if the administration would accept that kind of language? 
I don't know specifically if uh, the decision had been made to accept the language, though I do know specifically that the president uh, has said that, and, and it, would, it, it would sort of invite the notion of having language, because he has said that if you pass an AUMF with respect to ISIL now, he will rely on his authority for ISIL on that AUMF and not the 2001. So that would seem to leave it open. I just don't want to conclusively say they would accept the language because I haven't, that, I haven't personally heard that sign off. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Purdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I have a question for Cham Chairman Dempsey, but first, I, I just want to thank you personally for your lifetime of service, and I hope uh, that you'll take my echo of the request earlier to give our condolences to these heroes that lost their lives last night. Um, in his recent address before Congress, um, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu stated, uh, quote, so when it comes to Iran and ISIL, the enemy of your enemy is your enemy. Would you respond to that from a military perspective for me? Well, I won't respond to the Prime Minister's choice of words or his, how, he de, how he determines his national interest, but in terms of our national interest, as I mentioned, we've got six things that concern us about Iran. One of them happens to be their nuclear program. Thank you. A follow-up on that is after two wars and 14 years later, as Secretary Carter reminded us early this morning, Al-Qaeda still exists. Um, that's not a criticism, it's just a reality. I'd like for you to help me define what we see from a military point, point of view, what uh, a victory is against I, with ISIL in this, uh, with regard to this AUMF and our current uh, task ahead of us. Yeah, thanks for asking, Senator. We actually rarely have the chance to talk uh, about the, uh, the overall um, scheme here, if you will. So ISIL is transregional which is to say they're not just confined to Iraq and Syria. They're generational, which is to suggest the duration of this campaign will be prolonged. We, we are seeking to find a sustainable level of effort. And, and when I say that, I, you know, I, I, I didn't have the chance to respond to the difference in AUMFs from 1941 to 2015. It's important to note that the use of military force in a state-on-state -state conflict is very different than the use of military force in a, in a state on a non-state actor. And so we, the military bring three things, and we, we own two lines of effort out of nine against ISIL. The other lines of effort are governance, counter-messaging, counter-foreign financing, humanitarian relief, and so forth. The two things that we're doing is, of course, using direct action, and, and notably with our airstrikes. And the other is building partner capacity, which is to say, uh, building up the ability of the Peshmerga, the Iraqi security forces, the Sunni tribal leaders uh, to reject ISIL, because it will only be permanently defeated if they reject the ideology, not simply by us cutting off its head. It's actually got to be rejected from within. And that, that requires a different application of the military instrument than it would be if we were fighting a state-on-state -state actor. One last thing, and then I, in the interest of time, I'll stop. The military does three things for this nation. Direct action, build partners, and enable others. The, the best example we have right now of enabling others is what we're doing with the French in Mali against al-Qaeda of the um, Islamic Maghreb. So 
That's what we're doing. That's what this AUMF um, allows. And the limiting principle, I, I sense we're looking, or some of us in the room are looking for a limiting principle. The limiting principle is the way this particular enemy will be defeated. It won't be defeated by U.S. military power alone. Thank you. You, you mentioned last week, I think, uh, Mr. Chairman, that um, you were concerned about what happens afterwards with regard to sectarian violence and so forth. And if we're victorious against ISIL in Iraq, it looks to me like that Iran is also victorious because of their efforts there behind the Shia militia. Can you speak to that just a minute in terms of, of that part of the definition of a victory? And then what do we do from a military standpoint once we declare victory over ISIL in Iraq and Syria, by the way? There's a, there's a lot in that question. Yes, sir. The, um, Look, Iran is going to be influential in Iraq, has been influential in Iraq. And I, and I am concerned about the way they wield that influence. There's ways they could wield it to promote uh, a better Iraq, economically, for example. And there's ways they could, they could wield that influence to create um, a state where the Sunni and the Kurds are no longer welcome. And it's my concern about the latter uh, that we're watching carefully as this Tikrit event unfolds. Um, as far as declaring victory against ISIL, that's not for us to declare. It, as I said, very much we can enable it, we can support a coalition, hold the coalition together, we can build into the region, we can harden the region against it militarily, um, but the ideology has to be defeated by those in the region. Well, I'm concerned about Iran's stature in the region, particularly relative to Assad and Hezbollah as well as the Shia militia. And so this, this looks like that if we're successful, we have a partner in crime here where Iran is also going to be successful in strengthening their position. Let me echo one thing that I heard both sides say this morning. I, I want you to pass this along to your men and women in service, if you will, is that we, we, we hope we will end up uh, unified. I, I absolutely believe we have to be like-minded in this. This is bigger than any partisan position. This is about the security of our country. And the lesson we heard, or the speech from the speech last week was simply this, and that is, this is bigger than the Middle East. It's bigger than our national security. This is about global security all of a sudden. I'd like to follow up real quick, if I could, on this symmetric versus asymmetric conversation, though. You're talking about the symmetric or the asymmetric uh, question with regard to Iraq, Syria, and the Middle East right now. I'm concerned a little bit, and I'd like to have you respond, if you will, and maybe Secretary Carter as well. Uh, what impact does this have on our long-term strategy relative to the symmetric threats? And I know that, that we don't talk a lot about People's Republic of China, we don't talk about Russia in this conversation, but it's all interrelated. And I'd like to see how this, in your mind, relates to the longer-term strategy. Thanks, Senator. So uh, for the first time in my 40 years, we have both state and non-state threats to our national interest. Because in my first 25 years, it was all about state threats, no notably the Soviet Union. For the last 15 years, it's all about non-state actors. We live now in an environment where we have threats to both the emanating from both states and non-states. And it makes, we're, we're actually adapting quite well to that. And I don't want to turn this into a budget hearing, but if we don't get some budget help on this issue of sequestration, it's going to be very difficult to manage both threats. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. For you not to get a word in about your budget would be a missful thing on your part. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I want to thank Secretary uh, Kerry for his strong words about the um, letter that was sent by our 47 colleagues 
to the um, government of Iran. I think that was a serious breach of protocol and uh, a, uh, an exercise in bad judgment, especially at this very sensitive time. Uh, and I thank the Secretary for taking that very strong uh, position in this uh, hearing. Um, Secretary Carter, what I would like to ask you is um, how this extends to Libya and what this authorization could mean given the increasing stronghold that ISIS has in many parts of Libya uh, and what it could portend in terms of U.S. commitment to the removal of ISIL from Libya. Uh, Senator, uh, th uh, thank you. There are those in uh, Libya uh, who are, I'll use the term, rebranding themselves as uh, ISIL. Uh, that's not the only place we see that, but we, it, it, uh, uh, it, is, it is certainly going on in Libya. And uh, therefore, this uh, AUMF uh, could apply to operations uh, in and around Libya against those groups, depending upon their behavior and whether they met the criteria of this AUMF. And also, because the 2001 AUMF is extant as well, uh, that could also cover uh, actions we w might need to take in Libya, as it has in the past, if there are successor groups to Al Qaeda. Uh, so both of those might apply to Libya, and, and uh, these are the kinds of things, determinations that are made <clears throat> as these cases uh, arise. Uh, but uh, you do see in this social media-fueled movement called ISIL, uh, people who are wannabes or want to join or have been uh, associated with al-Qaeda or some other group who are putting up the flag uh, of Iceland. We need to recognize that that's a characteristic of the campaign, and that's why the AUMF has the language that it does. Okay, and if I may um, move back over to Syria, in terms of what all of this means for a long-term American commitment, um, our goal is to remove Assad. Uh, the goal of Iran and Russia is to keep Assad in office. Uh, Iran most prominently, uh, given their now crescent from Baghdad uh, over through Tehran and into Damascus. Um, what does this mean in terms of the commitment that we're making uh, to have the uh, moderate Syrians uh, depose, take out Assad? Um, that's their goal. Uh, are we committing to back them in their effort to depose Assad uh, because that's their stated public goal? So how, how do we square up this AUMF potentially with that longer-term goal which our principal allies inside of Syria would have? Uh, Senator, um this is ISIL-specific. Uh, there are those who wish it would include Assad, but it doesn't. Uh, we are supporting the moderate opposition, however, very directly in the efforts that are focused on Assad. And the Congress, uh, and we're grateful for it, uh, 
has approved of the uh, training and equip program. Some $500 million have been appropriated. And that program is about to be up and running. Uh, in addition to that, there are other activities, as you know, that are focused on uh, the issue of President Assad. But specific to the AUMF, the AUMF is ISIL-specific, and it does not authorize activities against Assad. But in helping to fight ISIL inside of Syria and strengthening the moderate Syrians, whose goal is to remove Assad, are we not, at a minimum, uh, indirectly helping that goal to be achieved by potentially eliminating the threat of ISIL to that goal of the moderate Syrians? And uh, <clears throat> are we contemplating, as a result, then, a longer stay in Syria uh, to accomplish that goal as well? No, I, I think when you say a stay in Syria, we're not in Syria. No, I mean stay in terms of our military support for the, the military the, support the, for taking is, out ISIL and strengthening the moderate Syrians. We are committed to strengthen the moderate Syrians. We are committed to help train and equip. We are committed to other activities that are specifically focused on uh, the Assad regime. But th this authorization and the efforts to deal with ISIL are focused on degrading and destroying ISIL. And that particular military activity, should that goal be accomplished, would then cease and desist. But the effort to support the moderate opposition will continue. Now, obviously, if ISIL is eliminated and the moderate opposition has gained capacity as a consequence of that particular fight, they're going to be strengthened in their other activities. And we've made that argument openly and publicly. Uh, how long, in your opinion, General, do you think it will take for Assad to be removed militarily or politically, given the, his current state? Yes. Well, that's, it's two very different questions. I mean, the diplomatic line of effort is the primary line of effort right now. I have not been asked uh, to apply military, the military line of effort to the removal of Assad. So I, I think I would actually defer to others on how long it might take. I mean, the, state, the, the position of the United States is clear, and that is that he has given up the legitimacy of governing people who he's oppressing. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. If I could, I, uh, just to respond to Senator Markey and Secretary Kerry's previous comments, I'd like to ask unanimous consent to enter into the record um, a copy of Congress.gov, where then Senator Kerry, then Senator Obama co-sponsored a bill to ensure that Congress had a vote on the agreement that we reached with Iraq. I understand that in this world, sometimes where you stand is where you sit, but I would like to balance out some of the discussion today and understand that uh, certainly positions change sometimes depending on which side of the table you're sitting. And with that, Senator Isaacson. If I, if I may, Mr. Chairman, I was referring to the the timing uh, of, that, of the delivery of that le letter, given the negotiations yeah. which Secretary Kerry is right now engaged in. And I, again, I continue to yeah. believe that was yeah. an inappropriate 
document for the time at which it was delivered, yeah. just not, yeah. um, not uh, timely. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> thank you all for your service to the country. We appreciate your patience here today. I had a college professor who once said, the mind can only absorb what the seed can endure. You've been enduring a lot of time. We hope, we hope we won't keep much longer. I have one question. It's for Secretary Kerry. And it's not a, a deference to you that I'm not asking the question. I want to thank you for your service as generals and commander-in-chief. You do a great job for the American people. And you work, you are, you have a job that has a commander-in-chief who is a politician who is subject to 535 other politicians and your funding. So any question I ask you wouldn't be really fair if it had a political connotation to it. But Secretary Kerry, you and I have served together a long time. You served the country in Vietnam. You've been a great leader for our country. And you know this is really a political issue in part and has political overtones in terms of the AUMF, which I do support. And I believe that Senator, uh, the remarks made by Senator Mendez, Senator Flake, Senator Perdue, and others about the need to come together as a Congress and have a meaningful AUMF are important. Here's what I want to ask you, Secretary Kerry. The first president to ever mention radical Islam was Thomas Jefferson and the Barbary Pirates. General Dempsey has talked about this being an, an enduring conflict and talked about it being regionally, evolving regionally and being trans-regional. We know they're in, that, that uh, ISIL is in the Maghrib through Boko Haram. They're in the Levant. We've had attacks in Paris. We've had attacks in Brussels. So it's a growing threat. Here's my question. If, in fact, we've had problems all the way dating back to Thomas Jefferson, and if, in fact, this is a growing regional threat, having a time limitation on the AUMF doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Because I think we have a united commitment as a country and as a nation to fight ISIL and to defeat ISIL. But as General Dempsey has said, that definition is not the easiest definition to write into words. It's a combination of a lot of things happening together, one of which is an enduring commitment. On the term of enduring, I, I think enduring in terms of the AUF, AUMF means it doesn't mean special forces, but it probably would mean 672,000 troops being deployed. And I can understand that's something the President would probably want to come back to the Congress and get an authorization for. But if we took off the three-year limitation so that this was a commitment until we accomplish our goal of de degrading and destroying ISIL, wouldn't we be better off to send the clear signal that there is no end to this conflict, as far as we're concerned, until we win the victory? That was probably a disjointed question and more of a statement, but I'd appreciate your uh, response. Uh, thank you, Senator. No, it's a very, a very important one, uh, actually, and I appreciate it. And, and you don't have to commit yourself on behalf of the administration, but for thought-provoking comments, I'd like to hear them. <laughs> Well, thank you. First of all, let me thank you personally, because I'm delighted you uh, stayed on the committee. I see you gave up a couple of seats of seniority to do so, and I, and I well know why you did. And uh, I certainly want to express my appreciation, because I know you'll be a strong and critical voice for uh, some of the things that don't always get paid attention to, particularly uh, in Africa. So I thank you for that. Um, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, I, I believe that the three years, if they are accompanied by the vote that is necessary here and by the accompanying uh, uh, commitments by each senator who goes to the floor to speak and define why we are doing this and what we are doing, I think it would be a healthy debate. I am confident coming out of that will be an absolute understanding by everybody in the region and in the world that we are deeply committed to this and committed for more than the three years. I think the three years will be respected, as Secretary Carter said, 
as a reflection of a kind of political process here and not as a diminishment of the fundamental commitment to achieve our goal. Every country in the region is committed to defeat ISIL, every country. And that's partly what has prompted some of the questions here because of Iran's commitment to do that. So I, I, um, I, I really think that uh, the three years is more of a uh, statement of respect by President Obama of personal choice for him to say to the next president, to the Congress, review this, take a look at it, see how it's going, tweak it if necessary. I don't think he has any doubt about the readiness and willingness of Congress to continue that forward, but perhaps with some, uh, you know, state-of-the-art refinements. So uh, I don't think it's a problem. I think we can uh, deal with that. And I think in order to achieve the vote that's necessary, the experience of Iraq and the experience of Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan, you know, create a sufficient cloud over the potential of this vote that I think everybody can say, okay, what's the matter with doing, the, you know, reviewing it in three years, uh, but let's go do it. And I think that's the commitment that we need, and that gets us the stronger vote to do that. Well, I appreciate your response. I would just ask you to take that message back and talk, massage it a little bit and think about what I said, because I think the unequivocal commitment to see it to the end is important to be sent, and I think the enduring presence gives you a chance to come back and revisit if we expand our military effort. But in the meantime, that we have a common ground to get the vote out necessary to send the clear signal the Congress and the White House are united. Thank you for your time and your service. Thank you, Senator. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker. Um, I want to start by thanking General Dempsey and Secretary Carter and Secretary Kerry for your service, uh, for your testimony, your engagement with us today. Um, we recently heard of tragic news uh, of 11 service members, four soldiers, seven Marines, uh, currently missing and I believe presumed lost in a training accident at Elgin Air Force Base. And uh, I just think it is uh, worth a moment of uh, prayerful reflection on the enormous sacrifice that they have made and that their families, the loss that they're facing. Dover Air Force Base will be the place to which those families now go and their remains return. Uh, and I think all of us um, who are contemplating um, the undertaking we're about to um, authorize, uh, that I pray we're about to authorize, uh, is one that will involve a great deal of sacrifice across many countries in many years. Um, a question I wanted to raise is about who bears the cost. Uh, in addition to the men and women of the armed forces and their families, uh, I think we need to be putting on the table in our conversation about authorizing the conflict against ISIS uh, the financial cost. General Dempsey was right to raise the concerns about DOD's budget uh, for maintenance of effort across many different uh, fields. Uh, the need to pay for this war is, for me, a central concern. Uh, going back uh, to 1961, President Eisenhower said America could choke itself to death, piling up military expenditures just as surely as it can defeat itself by not paying enough for protection. Uh, we have used a combination of either spending cuts or increased revenue to pay for every conflict uh, before the 2003 Iraq War, and the two post-9-11 engagements uh, added literally trillions of dollars uh, to our nation's debt. So I think we cannot write another blank check for war. We have to pay for it. I think it's also um, just not just fiscally responsible, but morally responsible. It engages every American uh, in bearing the cost of the conflict. Uh, and I'm aware this is not directly within the purview of this committee, but I think it's the responsibility of all of Congress. So uh, I am intending to renew this conversation. In the last Congress, I 
uh, introduced an amendment to the AUMF uh, that was debated and considered, and I will do so in this uh, debate and consideration and also in the upcoming budget process. Uh, I wondered if any of you um, cared to comment uh, on behalf of the administration on an amendment um, that would call for a temporary war surtax uh, that raises revenues or one that is a mix of raising revenues and cutting spending uh, to offset the cost of the conflict against ISIL. Secretary Carter, I'll start with you if I might. Uh, I, you're raising a very uh, important question. Um, my own uh, view uh, is that uh, that question uh, uh, is is not best uh, associated with the authorization for the use of military force, although it's a very important question. Uh, the AUMF principally covers the kind of campaign required and the support uh, and authority of the president to engage in, in that. Uh, with respect to the expenditures, uh, we are uh, in a situation, and Chairman Dempsey referred to this, and I believe the State Department is also in, in terms of its own budget. Uh, of, of one in which we've had uh, uh, year after year of turmoil, mm -hmm. uh, which is disruptive, which is wasteful, which causes all of us, and I think this is probably true in the State Department budget and any of my other colleagues, to uh, have a very difficult time managing uh, appropriately and efficiently. So that's a very important problem, and um, uh, I uh, am, uh, appreciate uh, your uh, attention uh, to it and agree with what you said. Uh, I, again, and this is now I'm offering a view off the top of the head here, but I, uh, I, I think that that is best uh, dealt with and needs to be dealt with, but would be best dealt with in another, another way than by uh, incorporating the, fu the funding situation in the AUMF. And I'll say one more thing. Well, I, I think that's... Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, the, the point I'm simply trying to raise is that at the same time uh, that the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, raises appropriately uh, enduring budget concerns, um, as a former member of the Budget Committee myself, I, I feel uncomfortable that we continue to use OCO uh, contingency funding for more and more uh, reach and more and more functions, and I'd like to see us take on, perhaps in other committees, but the responsibility of clearly shouldering the responsibility of paying for this and not just asking for sacrifice from those who wear the uniform. Secretary Kerry, if I might, to two questions in the time I have left. Um, there's been some back and forth and a number of questions by senators about what associated forces mean. Um, both uh, Senator Isaacson and I have long been engaged on issues relating to Africa, as you well know. Uh, and whether in uh, Libya or in uh, Nigeria, uh, there have recently been uh, organizations pledging uh, their allegiance uh, to ISIL. Um, just this past Saturday, Boko Haram leader Abu Bakr Shakao pledged allegiance in a statement uh, that they posted to their Twitter account. Um, and I think uh, the conflict uh, with Boko Haram in Nigeria is, a, is another, frankly, good example of a situation where an American uh, boots-on-the-ground presence is not what's called for, an American effort to facilitate uh, and support uh, efforts by uh, the Nigerians and their regional allies is the best strategy going forward. Um, but in your view, if that began to uh, take off and their uh, conflict began to engage some of our coalition partners, uh, would this AUMF um, qualify for us to go after any groups that have pledged allegiance? And then what are the actions they need to take against coalition partners or Americans in order to be covered by this AUMF in its current language? Uh, well, Senator, thank you for the, for the question, an important one. Um, as of now, at this moment, in its current state, merely by pledging as they have pledged or flying the flag or 
you know, saying that they're now affiliated. Uh, there's no decision made nor any contemplated that they would be covered under this at this moment. I mean, that's not adequate. But if, as uh, Secretary Carter said, they start to uh, attack the United States or join with uh, ISIL in a specific strategy to attack coalition partners, that would raise a legitimate question. And the, uh, this authorization could, in fact, under those circumstances, cover them. It would have to be, you know, there would be a lot of uh, internal scrubbing of exactly what those activities were, what the implications are, and so forth would not be automatic, but it would be open to judgment. Let me ask one last question, if I might, Mr. Secretary, on the topic of the negotiations with Iran. Uh, I'll make a statement, and if you care to comment, that'd be great. Um, it is my hope uh, that if a long-term agreement is reached, um, that the inspection obligations, the IAEA inspection obligations, will be enduring and will not simply sunset at the end of whatever that term is. Uh, and I think knowing that there was a continuing inspection obligation uh, would give some uh, comfort to those of us who do not trust Iran and are not confident um, that at the end of the window they won't simply immediately return to their previous illicit nuclear weapons activities. Do you care to make a comment? I'll make a very quick comment, uh, and it addresses a lot of the comments that we've been hearing from the Hill over the course of the last weeks and months. I keep hearing people say, we don't trust Iran, we don't trust Iran. Nothing in this agreement contemplated, if it gets reached, is based on trust. Nothing. In fact, it's based on distrust and therefore would have to be accompanied by an adequate level of verification, whatever that may be. I'm not going to discuss at all what might or might not be contemplated, but I'll just simply say to you, whatever agreement is reached is not on a basis of some words and document and trust, it has to be verified, it has to be accountable. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank, Thank you, sir. Senator Raich. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, General Dempsey, this question's for you. If, um, well, first of all, let me state this as a, as a statement. I, I appreciate uh, what you're doing here. I, I think all of us agree that we, we need a strong vote on this AUMF. And I appreciate your efforts, uh, Senator Kerry, to, or excuse me, Secretary Kerry, to put this together and and, uh, and this is a very difficult needle to thread because of the wide variance of views in Congress. Uh, so I, I appreciate your efforts to do that, and I'm, I'm hoping at the end of the day that we do have this uh, strong, uh, a strong vote uh, in support of this. So uh, I, I urge you to continue those efforts. General Dempsey, this question's for you. If this passes, how will things be different uh, after this passes than they are now? What, what is this going to change? I don't think there will be any difference in our activities. I think there will be uh, um, potentially a difference um, uh, among our, our coalition partners in the way they view our commitment to the fight. But in terms of the way we apply military force, either directly through partners or enabling others, it won't change. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Mr. Chairman, this... Uh, what I'm going to say now is, for, is a statement for, for the record. It is not a question, uh, and I want to respond to some of the comments that, uh, that were made here today. I'm one of the 47 senators uh, that signed the letter that there's been all this uh, talk about in recent days. You know, this in indignation and breast beating over this letter is absolute nonsense. 
Uh, each of us that signed that is an elected member of the United States Senate and as such is a member of the first branch of this government. Uh, it, to say that uh, we should not or be communicating is nonsense. Members of Congress every single day uh, communicate with members uh, of uh, other countries, with uh, uh, presidents and heads of other countries, with secretaries of state and foreign ministers from other countries. It is done regularly. Every time Congress has a recess, Loads of airplanes leave Andrews Air Force Base with dozens of members of Congress who go directly and meet face to face with these heads of state. This letter was nothing more. We have constitutional responsibilities that we as elected officials of this first branch of government are required to meet. The problem we've got here is we have a real disagreement uh, over uh, the uh, talk regarding this treaty. And let there be no mistake, this is a treaty that is being negotiated. Senator, uh, Secretary Kerry and I were on opposite sides when we were debating the uh, uh, New START agreement. That was a treaty, an agreement between two nations regarding their nuclear capabilities. This is the exact same thing. It is, a, it is a, an attempt to reach an agreement over uh, nuclear weapons capability with another nation. It's a treaty and should be treated as such. I hope an agreement is reached. I really hope we get a good agreement. If we don't get agreement, there should be no agreement. I will say uh, in regards to what Secretary Kerry said about uh, other countries in the region and their view of what's happening here, he conceded that they were nervous. I would go further than that. I meet with the same people. I would, I would classify their feeling about this as queasy, very queasy. And anybody who doubts that should get the transcript of what Prime Minister Netanyahu said about it last week. I think uh, the uh, characterization that he made of uh, how he feels, his country feels, is very representative of how other countries in the region feel. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that is a statement for the record. I yield back my time. Thank you. Senator Palm. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the panel for coming today. Madison wrote that uh, history demonstrates what the Constitution supposes, that the executive branch is most prone to war, and therefore the Constitution, with studied care, vested that power in the legislature. Madison also went on to further write that the separation of powers would be protected by pitting the ambitions of one branch against the ambitions of another. There will be points of dispute. These points of dispute are important, and no one side will monolithically be able to declare victory. But I can tell you I'm not particularly happy with being lectured to by the administration about the Constitution. This is an administration who I believe has trampled the Constitution at many turns. This is an administration that seeks to legislate when it is not in their purview, whether it be immigration, whether it be health care, or whether it now be a war that's been going on for eight months without congressional authorization. This administration is in direct defiance of what Senator Obama ran on and what he was elected upon. He said no country should go to war without the authority of Congress unless under imminent attack. This is a great debate. I signed the letter to Iran, but you know what? The message I was sending was to you, 
The message was to President Obama that we want you to obey the law. We, need, we want you to understand the separation of powers. If this agreement in any way modifies legislative sanctions, it will have to be passed by Congress. That's why I've supported Senator Corker's legislation that says exactly this. However, I've told Senator Corker privately, I think that's the law anyway, that this will have to be passed. You cannot undo legislation. So why do I sign this letter? I sign this letter because I sign it to an administration that doesn't listen, to an administration that every turn tries to go around Congress because you think you can't get your way. The president says, oh, the Congress won't do what I want, so I've got a, fen I've got a pen and I've got my phone. I'm going to do what I want. The letter was to you. The letter was to Iran, but it should have been CC'd to the White House because the White House needs to understand that any agreement that removes or changes legislation will be, have to be passed by us. Now, people can have different interpretations of things, but I'll go through a couple of things that bother me about the AUMF. The AUMF in 2001 says that nations or organizations that planned, authorized, committed, or aided in the attacks on 9-11 are, are the target. That's what the authorization is about. I don't read Boko Haram into that. I mean, if we're going to read Boko Haram into that, that is such a stretch that it's meaningless. Senator Murphy talked about vagueness. It's pretty specific in 2001 what we were supposed to do. I was all in favor of that. We had to do what we had to do with Afghanistan, with those who attacked us. If we have to go other places, we should have other authorizations. I'm not saying I won't vote for the authorizations. We just need to have them. So we have a new authorization that says we don't authorize enduring and offensive operations. The problem is it is so vague that I, I, trust, I trust the military. When the military says this isn't what we're contemplating, I trust you. But the thing is there will be another president who I may or may not trust, may have a certain degree of, of lack of trust in this president, saying that it's not being contemplated. So we say it's not 697,000, but the next president could say it is. You know, is it 100,000? You know, that would be my question, I guess, to Secretary Carter. Um, we're saying it's not 697,000. Is it 100,000 troops? Uh, thank, thank or you, could Senator. it be? Thank you, Senator. It, well, it doesn't have a number in it, uh, <clears throat> and um, that uh, uh, reflects the basic approach that this draft AUMF or proposed AUMF uh, takes, which is to uh, not attempt to enumerate or number uh, but to uh, set a scope and a limit, a very but, meaningful limit. But could it limit, mean 100,000, A meaningful limit, uh, referring to, uh, and the president specifically referred to, the campaigns in Af well, here's Af the, Iraq and Afghanistan. And it just gets back to the whole logic of the, right. the campaign, which is to enable those in the region who can make a victory stick. Right, that's, and I understand, our, I understand, not, wanting to put, I understand not wanting to put a number on it. And when the authorization was passed in December, it didn't put a number on it. It defined sort of the mission more precisely. In doing so, it basically defined what we're doing over there now. I see nothing that we're doing over there now that wouldn't have flown under the definition from December. The problem is, is that without a geographic limit, we now have Boko Haram. People are saying, and the thing is, it's sort of like, it's disdainful to say, well, 
you know, we want y'all to pass something, but it doesn't really matter because we'll just use 2001, which is just absurd. And it just means that Congress is inconsequential, and so are the people in the country that basically will do what we want if Boko Haram can be included under 2001. If Boko Haram's a threat to the country, bring it to me and we'll vote. And I'll listen honestly on whether we need to attack Boko Haram in Nigeria. But the thing is, is that I understand how things change over time and how people transmute uh, words to mean things that they really weren't intended to mean. If 2001 can be applied to Boko Haram, I'm very concerned about voting for this as it is worded because if we're gonna go to war in Libya, I wanna vote for war in Libya. If we're gonna go to war in Nigeria, I wanna vote for war in Nigeria. Now I'm not talking about an isolated small episode where we have to go knock out a cell of people that are organizing to attack us. You may be able to interpret that under the imminent uh, attack sort of clause of the, con of the Constitution. But I am concerned, that's why we get to numbers. Under this, under this resolution, I believe you could have uh, unlimited numbers of troops in Iraq. I understand you say it's not contemplated. I also believe you could have unlimited numbers of troops in Libya and in Nigeria, and now there are 30 nations that have pledged allegiance to ISIS. So words are important, and people worry about the danger of being too confining. We're not even anywhere close to that, because even when we thought we were confining in 2001, people have interpreted that to mean anything. And so really, I guess, Secretary Carter, you, do you understand that if it were to pass as is now, there are those of us who would worry that this would be authorizing unlimited troops in 30 different nations if the administration saw fit to send them? Uh, 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 Senator, I think that any AUMF, and certainly this proposed AUMF, tries to strike a balance between um, being uh, 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 anticipating a wide enough range of contingencies that we can react in the way that we need to protect ourselves and that we anticipate the nature of this enemy while being restrictive enough to suggest to not just the law but to you and our, our force, the force for which uh, I am responsible and General Dempsey is responsible what we're contemplating here. We're trying to strike that balance. Uh, it's always hard to strike a balance in language. I said before I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I, in common sense terms, that's the balance that we're trying to, uh, to strike. And I respect that different people might use different language to that effect. And I've learned enough in uh, studying for this hearing about uh, authorities for the use of military force to know that there are several avenues uh, uh, to do that. Um, but I, I think that uh, what is being done here is, is in recognition of a new chapter opening, namely the ISIL threat, which opened last summer, the a recognition that there's a new chapter in our effort uh, to protect ourselves and in respect, out of respect for that, uh, a request for a specific authorization. Um, and I, I, I think I understand that. I don't think that I think the lawyers have said there isn't a legal necessity for it. It doesn't come from a legal necessity. It comes from a recognition of a practical fact, which is something happened last summer which created a new danger to which we, ha in, in the defeat of which we need to participate. We're not going to do it by ourselves. We're going to enable others to do it. And that's the principal insurance against it turning into an Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not what's needed here. That's not what will succeed here. So, uh, I mean, I just speaking as the Secretary of Defense, and again, not a lawyer, it seems to me that's the logic that brought us here, and I, I understand it. 
Thank you. And I just want to say I don't question your sincerity. And when you say it isn't contemplated, I, do, I truly do believe you that it isn't contemplated. But I have to deal with words that 15 years from now I have to explain to my kids and their friends and their kids' kids that something I voted for in 2015 still has us at war at 2030 in 30 different countries, okay? It is an ongoing threat, but we need to keep the separation of powers. We need to vote on these things. And the reason it has to be precise is I, I can't vote for something that's going to enable war in Libya and Nigeria and Yemen and all these places with 100,000 troops. There has to be some kind of limitation. And it's not your sincerity I question. It's the politicians and the next politician and the next politician after you. But thank you very much. Thank you. I have one follow-up question for Chairman Dempsey and Secretary Carter. I understand that Secretary Kerry uh, has a hard stop, and if you felt like you wanted to, to miss my last question, I would not consider it rude and would like for you to get on uh, with your business if you need to do so. If you want to stay, that'd be fine. But uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, I do have a hard stop. Can, can I just take one minute for one thing? Uh, I just wanted you to know that today the Treasury Department has uh, authorized, has initiated additional sanctions on uh, eight Ukrainian separatists, a Russian pro-separatist organization, three of its leaders, a Crimean bank, and additionally on some Yanukovych uh, uh, folks, supporters. In addition to that, we are today uh, providing immediately some $75 million of additional non-lethal assistance immediately to Ukraine in order to help them uh, in non-lethal assistance. And as you know, other things are currently under consideration. But I just wanted you to be aware of that, Mr. Chairman. Well, it's, uh, it's very timely. We thank you for that. We had a, a Ukraine-Russia hearing yesterday, and I know there's still the push to, to provide the lethal support. Uh, I know this, uh, there were a lot of questions and some statements uh, made today, but the fact is all of us deeply appreciate the tremendous amount of effort you put forth in your job, and, and we thank you for taking the time to be with us today with the many other demands that you have. Thank you. So if I could, uh, gentlemen, uh, uh, Chairman Dempsey, If I could just follow up a little bit on the, uh, the AUMF and the issue of being able to protect uh, those that we train and equip against Assad's assaults and the fact that it's your belief that this AUMF does not cover that, nor does the 01 AUMF, and I assume uh, Secretary Carter agrees with that assumption, is that correct? Uh, I, I do. There, there, I do. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I'm told sort of separately, just to get to your question, if the forces that we train and equip uh, come under attack from Assad, uh, would we have the legal authority to help them uh, defend themselves? And my understanding of that question is that uh, we don't foresee that happening anytime soon. Uh, but the, a legal determination, I'm told by the lawyers, has not been made okay. whether we would have authority to do that or not. No, no, again, I'm yeah. not a lawyer, yeah. but that's what I'm told. And, I, and that, I think that's what you may have said, to, someone said to Senator Graham last week. I, I just, just out of, first of all, we thank you both for being here, and I know that coming before Senate panels is not on your 
first priority list in, in your current day jobs, but we appreciate the time here. But so this is just really to tease us out a little bit. It's a pretty big issue um, when you think about the fact that we've authorized the training and equipping and it, that the administration apparently did talk some with y'all, if I understand correctly, for there to be a clear legal determination, then that would mean that an additional authorization would need to be uh, approved by Congress for y'all to be able to, to protect the train and equip folks uh, against Assad. Um, that seems to me very problematic. I mean, you see the kind of consternation that takes place over the one that is now offered to come back later with another one doesn't seem to me to be a particularly appropriate way about going to go about things. And so, Chairman Dempsey, what what should be our thinking in that regard, and what is yours? First, Senator, I, I actually I chuckled when you said how much we enjoy coming over here. But the truth is, uh, over the course of my four years as chairman, I have come to a deep appreciation of the fact that we do have an Article One responsibility to to have these kind of conversations with you about our national security interests and the strategy to deliver them. So I actually want to thank you for running a very cordial uh, hearing today on the topics. Uh, as far as the what are we going to do about protecting the new Syrian forces as they are fielded, um, that question is, I, I mentioned the term active, we're in an active discussion. From the very beginning, though, we knew that we would come to the point where we had to make a decision about whether or not to protect them. And it was always my advice that we had to come to some conclusion to assure them that they would be protected. Now, the scope and scale of that protection is the, is the part of this that's being actively debated. But the program won't succeed unless they believe themselves to, to have a, a reasonable chance of survival. Well, let me just, just to follow up, and, and again, I, I appreciate the fact that you're not just looking at these issues in your role, but other issues in the Pacific and all around the world, and you've got to balance the resources that we have available to us. But back to that issue, I, can you understand why many of us here, uh, knowing that getting Turkey involved in some way on the ground uh, probably matters some to our success over time, if we're going to continue on the, on the policy path that we're on and the strategy, it's important. So knowing that the president didn't seek the authority to, to go against the side solely, again, I'm talking about the, not necessarily to take them on directly, but to be able to protect uh, do, to train and equip personnel that will be re-entering and also to, to deal with some humanitarian issues and, let's face it, the Northwest Triangle right above Aleppo. That would give many of us who certainly want to support this some concern that there really isn't a commitment level there to, to create, if you will, an effective ground effort. And I just wonder if you could respond to that a little bit. I, I can't ease your concerns, but I can tell you that um, when I provide my military advice, the, it, it is key to the success of the new, new Syrian forces that they will have a degree of protection. And that, as Secretary Carter has said, is under active discussion. Well, I assume then, since that's key to success, um, those that are actually carrying out uh, these activities would not be offended if Congress gave that authorization today. I, I leave that to uh, you, our elected officials. And I wonder if uh, Secretary Carter wants to respond to that, and I have one follow-up for you. I, 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 again, uh, 
the, the practical answer to your very practical question is the one given by the chairman, namely uh, that there can, there uh, could be circumstances in which the forces that we train and equip are come under attack from Assad's forces and it's important to them or will be important to them to know whether and in what manner they will be supported. That is something under active discussion. I don't believe that the legal, the, the legal aspect of that uh, has been determined. I, I'm not, so I can't tell you that you'd have to ask the White House counsel or our DOD counsel whether uh, anything additional was required in the way of uh, formal authorities uh, 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 to do that. I simply can't answer that question for you, but I, I do think it's a very meaningful, practical question, and I give the same answer to it that the chairman, uh, the chairman does. And, and, and I'll just, and I know that y'all are in active discussion and you have your own concerns, um, and those aren't necessarily always addressed quickly, if you will, by those that make decisions in other places, and, and I understand that. I, I will, I will say that from my perspective, um, it does show a degree of, of, of lack of commitment from the White House that they would not go ahead on the front end knowing that there's no way you can continue to recruit uh, the folks that are involved in this train and equip program if they know they're going to come into the country and immediately be barrel bombed and we're not going to support their efforts, it'd be very difficult to recruit additional folks as you've mentioned and it does cause me to be concerned about the administration's overall commitment if that's not being dealt with in this authorization when we have authorized the training and equip program uh, uh, several months ago. So it's just a, uh, something I raise. If I could to you, Secretary Carter, um, now the reason the question I think was asked about the Persian Gulf War and the 600, almost 700,000 troops that were involved. To me, the enduring offensive ground combat language that was in the AUMF that was sent over would have allowed for that. Um, it was seven months, it was a seven month operation. That to me was not enduring. Uh, very successful, I might add. And I, so you're saying that, that a seven-month operation from your standpoint is beyond, uh, would not, uh, if, if you will, qualify uh, per the President's language. That would be too long. The, 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 the reference you're using is to a, a campaign intended to destroy the military forces of another state. Uh, that is a fundamentally different kind of conflict uh, from this one. So I, the, the, the ability I, I to compare that. them eludes yeah. me. But I'm really, I understand you're making a difference there, and I, under, I understand the difference between going against a country and going against an entity like ISIS or Daesh. I guess what, what troubled me just a hair, and again, we all respect deeply the way you've come in and, and taken charge, um, but talking about a seven-month operation being too long, that, that goes beyond, uh, if you will, an enduring offensive. Uh, I, would, I just wish you'd clarify that to some degree for the record. If it takes two or three years, I would assume you would not consider that to be enduring. Would I, would I have, uh, uh, i just repeat what I said earlier about the time scale. Uh, we don't know how long it will take to defeat ISIL. 
And I explained earlier that I wouldn't tell you that it was three years, which is the only duration included in this authorization of the use of military force. And it doesn't derive from any expectation of how long the campaign will last. It derives from the political calendar of our, of our country. Uh, so that is the time scale named and um, specified uh, in the uh, proposed AOMF, and that is its uh, origin, and that's the only period of time that is specifically named in the AOMF, and that's its, that's its, its derivation. I know that Senator Menendez has indicated he didn't have any questions, but I I've, Okay, go ahead. I don't have any questions, Mr. Chairman. I just have a comment. First of all, I, <clears throat> I want to share with, along with I think every member of this committee and of the Senate, our thoughts and prayers for the service members who were lost. It just underlines that there is risk once you don the uniform, even if you are not under enemy fire. And so our, our thoughts and prayers are with the family. It also reminds me, as someone who did not vote for the process of sequester, that we can't ask you to do everything we ask you to do if we don't find relief from sequester here along the way. Uh, we seem to somehow ignore that, but I don't think both of you have that, that luxury. We, gotta, we have to deal with that. Finally, uh, I do hope that we can get to a point to find the right balance, and that's not easy in this proposition, to give you an AUMF that gives you the wherewithal to degrade and defeat ISIL, but by the same token doesn't provide an open-ended check. And <clears throat> I think that the real concern here is for some of us who lived uh, under shock and awe uh, and were told that Iraqi oil was going to pay for everything uh, and saw a lot of lives and national treasure spent, that even well-intentioned uh, efforts can move in a totally different direction. And this is the most critical vote that any member of the Congress will take, which is <clears throat> basically a vote on war and peace and life and death. And so uh, for those of us who have been pursuing this to try to find the right spot, the one thing I want you to take away from the hearing is that I don't think there's a Democrat or Republican who doesn't believe that we have to degrade and defeat ISIL. We stand collectively with you. And as we struggle to get to the right wording with the right authorization, I just hope you can go back to the men and women who served this country with great sacrifice, that in that spirit we are united. And so our only cause uh, here is to find out how is the best way to ensure that and not at the end not ensure, you know, an endless war, uh, which uh, is, is the concern of many. Thank you for saying that. It means a lot. Thank you both. Thank you. I, uh, just as um, I was just uh, handed a note, just as I think you all were a minute ago, I just want to end uh, my last statement before thanking you by saying it's my understanding the DOD senior lawyers are sitting behind you. <coughs> And it is my understanding as we leave here that uh, the authorization that has been put before us and the 2001 authorization, neither one give, give clear-cut authority for y'all to be able to defend uh, the training and equip program against Assad's assaults. I just want to state that. I don't think anybody's disagreeing with that. Is that correct? I, 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 that's my understanding, and um, I, I be happy to have our uh, uh, legal uh, uh, team speak to you about that. That's my understanding, Senator. Well, since I don't see them waving their hands back there, I'm assuming they are speaking now. So um, I would just like to close also by telling you how much we respect you both, how much we appreciate your service to our country, 
how much we appreciate you taking the time to come up here. I think this has been very helpful to all of us. We wish you well. And uh, uh, the record will be open until the close of business Friday. I hope if questions come, you will answer them as promptly as possible. Again, thank you for your service and for being here today. The meeting is adjourned. Thank you.